0: Also, fuck the cokes, man. They, you know how long you know how long it's gonna take to get rid of this limited government reputation yes. thing that they've. Seriously, fucking
1: propaganda shit. I always read it as Koch brothers. <laughs> the Koch Bros. The crotch Bros. Corporations, when faced with the reality that their products are doing damage to customers, employees, or the environment, too often respond with denials and defenses that are disingenuous at best, reckless at worst. Corporations can't do this alone. They enlist hired guns, scientists along with attorneys, public relations specialists and others to help undermine evidence, shape public opinion, delay protective regulation, and defeat litigation from people alleging current or past harm. This is the central argument uh, posed by David Michaels in our book for this time, The Triumph of Doubt, Dark Money, and the Science of Deception. Uh, this time on Reader Beware, we'll be giving you uh, a brief overview of the book, going through a few of the key issues. And today, uh, to help me do that are two of my friends. We have Z. are you going by your name now? <laughs> Zachary, hello, that's me. Zach. How's it going, that's- guys? with a k exactly. with a with a k it's uh great to be here how are you doing rotor i'm doing pretty well you know it's it's a little bit later than we normally record our podcasts but uh i'm i'm feeling good I'm feeling good i had some noodles and some chicken so i'm go pathetic sick <laughs> i got a beer and i haven't eaten since like noon so this is gonna be- are you serious <laughs> that's I'm a cheap serious. way to get uh get buzzed that's great also here with me is alexis russell how are you doing alexis
2: hi i'm doing great not yawning
1: Totally. never yawned (laughs) awesome
2: this is gonna be great
1: (laughs) so i brought this week's this month's this year's book and uh i think it's i really enjoyed it i know uh some of you may not have enjoyed getting into the weeds of you know regulatory science but I thought it was great. I thought it covered a lot of very interesting stuff, a lot of different industries. Um, It was pretty clearly biased, um, Mm -hmm. I would say towards the left side of modern politics. And uh, he really hits it on the nose in one of his chapters and basically calls out Republicans or the way that republicanism has going. So it's definitely written um, from a specific perspective, but nevertheless, I thought it offered um, a lot of details, a lot of interesting facts, a lot of good citations for further reading. Um, but I do acknowledge it was a little bit, uh, a little bit wonky um, at times. What were y'all general thoughts on the book? Do you enjoy it? Was it tedious?
2: I'll go first. I did enjoy it. I think that it could have been shorter in certain parts. Um, and I do, I mean, I am liberal, but even for me, it was a little bit like Okay, we get it. You worked for Obama. Never brought up any criticism of the Obama <laughs> administration or any bad thing that OSHA ever did under him. Like, there were no... Which is obviously not the reality. Like, there are things that he, he could have drawn from, mm-hmm. but he he's clearly a confident dude, and rightfully so. He has a lot of experience, and he did head OSHA for how long? How many years under?
1: Oh, gosh. Like, seven? seven Right. Years? Yeah.
2: A long time. So... Um, You know, he he definitely has the expertise, but sometimes it was a little bit like, okay, dude, we get it. You're not like perfect though. And I'm sure if someone dug into it, they could find negative things that a Democrat has done for OSHA or for some type of, you know, regulation. So, but -hmm. anyway, I thought it was good. He was funny at times, (laughs) which I appreciated. And I honestly did learn a few things. Well, I learned a lot generally, but some things I learned that I completely had no idea about, um, which is always fun. And yeah, so I thought it was good.
0: Thanks, great.
1: I'm glad to hear that. Zach, what what were your uh, kind of initial thoughts on the book?
0: yeah i mean um big picture i think this is a really interesting book about like specific deceptions and in specific industries um to me i feel like there's some of the more egregious examples of like product defense as a um call i guess i'll call it an industry as well but like uh i think it's a little bit frustrating to me in some instances just in that the author kind of states in the i don't know if it's the overview or the first chapter but he says that there is a factual bottom to every issue and for me this generalization is a little unsettling sure we have a factual bottom to some issues and some of which that he talks about in the book have factual bottoms for sure but also science moves pretty slow and if their findings have been historically over applied or flat wrong in other instances as well so i uh am excited to get into the nuances of those i i think overall i, I think that there's some really great claims that are backed with great sources but also some claims that are not as well backed um, if you kind of dig into the index and the notes in this book. I also do agree with your point that it is pretty partisan. Uh, obviously, this guy worked for Obama, right. um, but it it kind of paints republicanism with one brush, and I am by no means a republican. I don't really like parties in general, and that's another discussion, but like, I do feel like it's coming from a very specific perspective, and it's not um, doing justice and trying to be an educational book when it paints with such a broad brush in mm. some of its instances. So I'm happy to to get into those nuances and discuss, but overall I, I agree that there were some great warrants in here, specific examples, some of the worst instances of how capitalists will try and yeah. uh, prioritize short-term profits over long-term like global health and other things. So mm-hmm. uh, excited to talk about it. I think it's a good book for our yeah. podcast. <laughs>
1: yeah I think so too i'll be I'll be excited to talk about some of those things too um, but before we go through a few of those specific examples um, from a few chapters that each of us thought were especially insightful, I thought it'd be a good idea to just do a really quick overview of what this book goes into. Um, so the introduction um, i thought was it was well written it kind of teases the NFL chapter it goes a little bit into Um, Sort of what product defense is and lays out a an outline for the book Um, the science of deception goes through sort of how um, the tobacco industry first sort of harnessed the power of product um, defense uh, public relations firm it goes through um, Just sort of the history of these different companies and the relationships between specific people Uh, really general overview jumps right into the forever chemicals in chapter three goes through teflon a lot of people may have seen um, a documentary about that on netflix it's also been dramatized um i believe in a different movie i'm blanking on the names um do either of you know what i'm talking about there's a couple movies that talk about teflon well in any case it talks about how um
0: not chemicals. no dark waters is the i think that's monsanto
1: sorry Yeah, yeah, I think so. That one came out this year though. Um, Similar titles, I guess. So it talks about Teflon and about how the manufacturing of Teflon um, creates these polyfluorinated, um, oh gosh, it was PFOAs, right? Um, Or PFAOs? Yeah, PFAS, polyfluorinated uh, uh, alkyl substances. Let's go with that. (laughs) Awesome. Um, yeah, we'll fix it in post. Zach, could you just edit all this to make me sound smarter? Um, <laughs> and about sort of the environmental exposures, um, the litigation that resulted from that. Chapter four goes into the NFL um, and makes a lot of claims about um, sort of the health risks of playing in the NFL and um, being a professional football player. Um, and how they specifically manipulated the science of concussions and uh, different diseases. They manipulated the evidence through relationships with different organizations, different doctors who are sort of on their side. Um, chapter five talks about the alcohol industry and sort of their claim that moderate to light drinking is good for you um, and sort of how that's sort of a sketchy claim, how it's not oftentimes backed up by the science and how um, alcohol industries as well have also used front groups, trade associations to um, discredit the suggestion that alcohol is necessarily bad for you. Um, Next, it moves on to the deal with diesel and talks about um, the air pollution that results from using diesel engines um, and other air pollutants. Chapter seven talks about opioids and about the Uh, how various industries covered over um, the effects of opioids, specifically talks about the Sackler family um, and um, yeah (laughs) about sort of their litigation problems. Chapter 8 is about deadly dust, specific OSHA regulations related to um, silica dust in the air. Chapter 9 is called Working the Refs and it goes into talc powder, Johnson and Johnson's scandal that you know, baby power, baby powder, uh, not baby power, um, is contributing to um, some forms of cancer. Uh, Chapter 10 is about Volkswagen and the ways that they skirted regulations and polluted the air. Chapter 11 is about climate denial and the various ways that the fossil fuel industry has harnessed their um, proficiency at lobbying, at working, Uh, the different regulatory agencies, um, all towards denying that climate change exists or that human beings have contributed to climate change. Chapter 12 talks about the sugar industry. If I'm sounding monotonous, um, a lot of the chapters were a little bit, um, you know, you you could kind of see where things were going. One of his initial quotations was, no matter how cynical you are, uh, it's never enough to keep up. Um, and that's from Lily Tomlin, but he references that a, a few times. And I think uh, David Michaels really kind of, um, I don't want to say uh, beats the dead horse, but he, uh, he certainly drives his points home. And each of these industries follow the same strategy of big tobacco, uh, big sugar, um, any other big insert industry name. Now, chapter 13 sort of changes it up a little bit and talks about how the Republican Party specifically um, has really embraced this form of um, spirited denial of scientific conclusions around that. are da- balanced. Right, right. Um, how Fox News, how Republicans, how the Tea Party and Libertarians have sort of... Um, walked a line that is beneficial to corporations and how they've recognized and leveraged that um, uh, similarity of belief, we'll say. Chapter 14 talks about science for sale, goes through a playbook of what industries will use to contest regulations and to ultimately get their way by any means necessary um, in the free market. Uh, Chapter 15 finally goes over some different specific policy recommendations that he has to sort of fix this situation um, in American politics and regulation. He talks a lot about disclosure of conflicts. He talks about setting up firewalls between regulatory agencies and corporations, and uh, ultimately makes the case that regulation defends capitalism, um, that product defense and all of these abuses of these corporations are ways of gaming the system, but ultimately regulation is beneficial for our way of life and beneficial for a market that not only protects everybody, but is beneficial to everyone. Um, And that's certainly up for debate, but I I thought in general he made a, he certainly has lots of examples uh, to make his point. So I think that just about gives you a synopsis of what he goes over. It's a lot of ground to cover. He doesn't go in depth necessarily on on a lot of stuff, but he definitely gives specific names, 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 names companies, and uh, I think does a good job to support his overall conclusion. Um, Is there anything I missed there, guys, or that you want to add to that synopsis?
2: I think you did great.
0: Yeah, I think that covers um, you know each each chapter, and uh, like like you said, it's it's very warranted. Like, there's some good specific histories in here. I actually found it a little bit similar to the conspiracy book in the way that mm-hmm. it like traced the history of a specific problem or kind of narrative mm-hmm. that, that he's exploring. Um, so I thought that was definitely interesting and provided some some examples that you probably would have never heard of uh, for if not for reading this mm-hmm.
1: book. Yeah, and I, I think. In general, I'm very skeptical of corporations. Maybe our next book should be like Atlas Shrugged or something, some, <laughs> some good capitalist uh, propaganda. But so this kind of confirmed a lot for me. And also going through the playbook, um, it's sort of like poisoning the well in a lot of ways. It's like anything someone from the industry wants to tell me like, oh, I see where this is going. You just hate science and you hate you know, truth. And I, I don't want to be so quick to like, discount what people say, but I'm so skeptical. Like I'm so skeptical of these organizations. And like if some if some lobbyist comes to me and says, like, I work for Cardo Chem Chem Chemrisk, I think. I think that's the name of the organization. I'm gonna be like, okay, I get it. Like whatever you're gonna say to me is probably false. And I don't want to be that guy. But I also don't want to go on the opposite side and be like, well, this is a controversial topic. There's lots of different opinions. How can we really know anything? Does that make sense? Like like I don't wanna count someone out just because of who they work for, but at the same time, I don't wanna engage with them if the entire point of them talking to me is to like establish a a controversy, you know?
0: You know, in chapter ten, um, I think he quotes Upton Sinclair, and something that I think really lines up with what you're saying right now. Um, the author quotes Upton Sinclair in saying, "It's difficult to convince a man of something if his salary depends on him not believing it." And I think that is absolutely a, a core thing to keep in mind, not only for businesses and capitalism, uh, businesses and capitalism, but also on the government and regulation side. Hmm. I think a lot of people's Hmm. careers depend on the regulatory mechanisms uh, that do control businesses as well. Also, for instance, David Michaels wrote this book and made some money off of it and probably made some money off of TV appearances and like other things. Also, this is the second book he's written on this topic uh, Mm -hmm. for the record. So I did like not to call him out. I think he's made some great points and warrants and we'll talk about that. Um, But I absolutely do see where you're coming from, but would just caution that like, I think, Humans can have those incentives despite where they work. I think you'll find like mm-hmm. well-intentioned and good faith advocates in business, maybe less so than you will in government, but you will find both in both houses.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I think money oftentimes will corrupt people, but it's not the only thing that corrupts people. Certainly not. And everybody, you know, my dad always tells me everybody has an agenda. And I think, you know, that's you think you're right to call that out. Um, Alexis, did you, what what do you think, what would you do if somebody walked up to you and said like, you know, actually there's no evidence that, uh, humans have caused any, any form of climate change. Really the debates, it's still up for debate. Would you want to like hear them out, kind of engage with them? Or would you be like, no, this is settled science.
2: I mean, I, I think something that extreme, I probably, would not entertain, but at the same time, like, I do believe in climate science. I do believe that it's breaking down, but have I sat and read the most, like, I I don't know, popular studies that prove that? Like, no, I haven't. I don't know the vocabulary. I don't know the method. I don't know anything about it, but I believe it. So, Mm Part, part of me might be like, oh shit, like, let me call Rotor, like, let me talk to someone who probably knows more about the actual details, of. which, I mean, I have done that with COVID, like, I've asked you specific things, because, like, I don't really trust myself, because I respect science so much, and I, which this book kind of, like, hurt me in that way, because it's, like, a scary world where there are actual research scientists out there who get paid to create doubt, like, that I feel like there should be like a Hippocratic Oath or something like for yeah. research scientists because of course it's it's not life and death in like a surgeon, but it's life and death in that if your study, quote unquote, is the thing that halts this important regulation that will lower the standard for some like terrible um, pollutant in the air so that way people won't die of lung cancer and your thing that you crafted uh, prevents that that regulation from going through, like, that is so bonkers to me. So, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I might hear out that person just because I have a lot of, like, deference for people who talk about science, and not that I don't, like, check into it and, like, think critically about it, but I'm not going to be like, you're totally full of shit, or, you know, just because I'm not – I don't have a basis of knowledge for most mm-hmm. things related to science – so yeah.
0: that is a, but that so is a pretty good. extreme example. And I, and I think I, I hear what you're saying. And, and I think for me, I would be more likely to believe it, uh, um, some of the other nefarious ways that they frame up an issue like climate science. So in the climate science chapter of this book, uh, they, they quote one of the Koch brother campaigns, not quote, they talk about one of the Koch brother campaigns and a Danish political scientist named Warren Lomberg, who um, he's not like an outright climate denier, but what he'll say is that uh, you know the impacts of the climate change are not going to be as bad. You know, you know, actually there's going to mm-hmm. be some pretty clear advantages to global warming because we're going to have mm-hmm. ice-free Arctic shipping lanes and like that kind of thing. And so, I think I would be more um, compelled to hear out somebody with that perspective than I would be an outright climate denier. And that's what gets scary is these campaigns start to get like really well thought through and it and um, executed and I don't know, I think that there is actually some, and this is where, you know, Zach talking, not the book talking, but I think that there is a little bit of debate within the scientific community about the timeline of global warming impacts. And so I probably would be compelled to hear somebody out that says, yeah, I think that people that think the world's gonna end in by 2020
1: 2012.
0: Yeah, whatever it is, right? The goalposts always got pushed out when we were kids and hearing like climate scientists talking about the ice caps are gonna be gone by whatever date, right? So like, mm-hmm. I I think there's certainly debate in the scientific community about the timeline. That being said, the, the impact level of that discussion is probably where these campaigns can become the most sophisticated and you like maybe can fall into the trap of a, um, what do you call it, a, a product defense <laughs> mm-hmm. campaign or whatever.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, as science, I don't know, when I say science and like Alexis, you said you trust science and I, I think I do too. Um, i'm i go on the side of science most of the time but whenever i i, I hear that it? word like it, it means a lot of different things like science is just a methodology of like objectively determining like the empirical reality of the world but there's a lot of nuance in like how you do that and fields like epidemiology are super complicated and they require like expertise and assumptions um zach knows with like, with modeling and statistics, there's a lot of assumptions that go into your model. There's a lot of um, things you have to decide on that aren't simply like, the speed of light is this number. Um, And then science-based policy too is like, I believe in science-based policy. And it's like, or science-informed policy, evidence-based policy. It's like, even if you know the objective reality of the world, you can't just skip from that to we should do this or like we should implement a carbon tax it's like well maybe there are other ways of like reducing co2 in the atmosphere or reducing emissions or something like that so i'm cautious of when people say like i love science or i trust science or i like evidence-based policy making because it's like i hear you and I'm, I'm listening but what does that mean like what have you considered all the unintended consequences of what you're proposing? Have you like done the uh, even the like electoral math and all that? Like it's more it's more nuanced than just saying like science is right and everyone else is wrong.
0: I also think that like science-informed policy can operate under every single political ideology like if you're willing to admit that the problems in the world, like for instance global warming, like I think the three of us are pretty on the train that humans have a impact on the environment we maybe disagree on like solutions on that or whatever but if republicans libertarians democrats all the political you know ideologies were to agree that global warming is a thing they would probably all have different ways to try and solve that thing and like Mm -hmm. that's probably the most interesting part of these discussions for me because i don't i'm not quite sure it's good faith bad faith i guess is like (laughs) what i'm getting at Like if a political person, a political party is willing to treat something as real and engage with it in good faith, I'm totally willing to hear them out. If they're willing, if they're going to try and be like, okay, that's not a real thing. That's where it's like, okay, you're not in good faith. And this is more about Mm -hmm. some other motive or motivation.
1: Yeah. It's like the difference between saying COVID is a hoax versus we can't shut down these key sectors in our economy because the medicine will be worse than the disease. Yeah. like, okay, well, those are
0: poor people and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough.
1: <laughs> well, I think, I think the author sort of makes, he doesn't go into a lot of international problems, but he does focus on the U.S. a lot. And one of the most American pastimes is watching football. So we're going to get into that chapter uh, next. And I think Zach has a lot of insight on that. But before, I'm told we have an ad.
2: Are you a big fan of Mary Jane, but not the smell? Do you like to numb the feeling of the world, but hate smoke? Well, we've got just the thing to keep you unplugged while you watch cartoons. Meet hydrocodone. Hydrocodone will ensure you don't feel a thing. Beat pain without the risk of a pesky weed addiction. Don't be a stoner, bro. Become an opioid Olympian.
0: Man, I gotta give me some
1: opioids.
2: I hate myself. (laughs) I didn't write that.
1: (laughs) Gotta get my hands on those. Are you an opioid Olympian? Okay. Suddenly, I have chronic pain in my ankle. Should probably go to the ER for that. So NFL
0: chapter. You want me to say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Transitioning out of like.
1: Exactly. Transitions
2: our... are not great. <laughs>
1: but... Well, speaking of back. marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> And we're back. Zach, as our resident uh, NFL expert, I know you took particular interest in the chapter on the NFL.
0: Yes. uh, I'm a fan of the NFL, uh, specifically the Pittsburgh Steelers. Big fan, uh, you know, of my Steelers. uh, But anyway, big, I've watched the NFL my whole life. So I was, you know, a little familiar with this topic growing up in the, 2000s and 2010s, we saw a lot of the impacts of the NFL's concussion cover-up come to the fore and learned a lot about CTE. And Mm -hmm. that is kind of what the NFL's head doctor chapter uh, touches on in The Triumph of Doubt. So just for a little bit of background information, um, CTE is a term used to describe brain degeneration that's likely caused by repeated head traumas. CTE is a diagnosis made only by autopsy uh, in studying sections of the brain after death. It's a very rare disorder that's not well understood because of the lack of studies and money that's been invested in researching it. It's not related uh, to the immediate consequences of a late life episode of head trauma. CTE has a complex relationship to head trauma such as post-concussion syndrome and second impact syndrome that occur earlier in life. So ostensibly, if you get concussions, at a high rate when you are younger, you could potentially have brain degeneration later in life. Some of the symptoms um, that are linked to CTE, actually um, there are no specific symptoms that have been clearly linked to CTE, but some of the possible signs and symptoms of CTE are difficulty thinking, impulsive behavior, depression or apathy, short-term memory loss, difficulty planning and carrying out tasks, emotional instability, Substance mis- misuse, suicidal thoughts or behavior that last one is particularly important because in the 2010s we 've seen several NFL members commit suicide and donate their brain to CTE research after because they felt like there was some cover up and and uh, legitimately felt that the NFL was not paying enough attention to. Uh, the impacts of repeatedly hitting each other in the head over the course of a decade or longer in an NFL career. Junior Seiyu is one of the most notable examples of that, um, you know, of players who actually took their own life and donated their brain to medical science to try and study more about this. Uh, The NFL has had a really complex, not complex, a really fucked up role in terms of CTE and how they've engaged with this in the past. Um, Reported from the New York Times, the NFL omitted over 100 concussions, including those of star players like Steve Young, Troy Aikman, from from foundational data used in 13 scientific studies from 1996 through 2001. The Mild Traumatic Brain Injuries Committee was formed by the NFL and was the group that was actually uh, conducting these studies. Unfortunately, this group was not very unbiased and not made up of objective scientists. It was actually made up of representatives from the NFL Team Physician Society, the NFL Athletic Trainer Society, and NFL Equipment Managers. So the league essentially turned to committee members that had financial ties to the league and were incentivized to probably show that is less of a problem. Concussions in general is less of a problem. The MTBI committee was formed in the early nineties after the New York times began reporting on the amount of concussions that players might face in a given game. And, uh, like said, through the early two thousands, they literally omitted hundreds of players concussions from the reports and did not do due diligence in terms of studying what they were commissioned to study. It's egregious. It's pretty bad. There's some data that indicates the NFL might've had some concerns about concussions and player health as early as the 1970s. Um, but the clear data trail we have in terms of a cover-up starts in the 90s. That's kind of the background information. I've always felt like this is a really clear instance of just ugly, ugly capitalism making a clear trade-off of human health for economic incentive. Um, And yeah, I'm excited. I'm happy to to talk about it in more depth, but I think I'll leave the setup there because that's a little lengthy.
1: Oh, that was great. Tons of specific data there. Um, And I think... I was, I was surprised to hear this because, you know, the NFL has a bunch of ads like we're doing, you know, our best work creating new helmets and preventing injury. So they, they seem like they've promoted an image of a very health conscious organization that protects their players and wants to encourage kids to kind of get into it too.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the NFL, um, is for sure effective at at their marketing capacities. Um, I, I think that the current commissioner, Roger Goodell, has actually done a pretty good job in terms of looking out for concussions and player safety as opposed to Tagliabue, who was the commissioner before uh, Roger Goodell. I I do still think that it's the same NFL just operating in a different kind of world lens. Mm-hmm. Um, they still care about player safety as, or players, uh, player safety being an aspect of players, about as much as it affects their bottom line. I would say one good Um, warrant for this would be the recent Black Lives Matter position change that you've seen from the NFL as a league they were very resistant to Colin Kaepernick's messaging and actually ostensive I don't there's not a lot of proof for this but it's probably fair to say that the owners were not willing to hire Colin Kaepernick despite him having a sufficient skill level to play quarterback or at least be a backup quarterback in the league after he was let go um, for you know in part kneeling and um, to spotlight police brutality against people of color. After the George Floyd riots, uh, whoa, George Floyd protests, excuse me, um, that occurred like over the last couple of months, you actually saw the NFL straight up apologize to Colin Kaepernick and Roger Goodell, the commissioner say, I think a team should hire him. So mm-hmm. again, I sure, like the NFL is doing a better job on concussions and player safety in 2020. That being said, I don't think that that is a out of the goodness of their heart or um, out of them trying to actually look out for player safety. It's more of a economic calculation that they're making. Yeah, Alexis, do you have any thoughts on this? <laughs>
2: um, I don't know how to really say my feelings. It's just it's egregious, and I don't I don't trust them now, and that's not necessarily just because it's the NFL like specifically I really don't trust any big corporation and the Black Lives Matter like marketing or like feminist marketing those are really good examples like I try my best not to fall for for those things and like the intention uh, behind it we'll never know but I just don't really trust it um and I don't – I also don't like football, though. So, I, I think for me, like, I think it's barbaric. I see no pleasure in that. And I personally, if I ever had kids, like, would not ever want them to ever play football. Mm. Um, and, of course, like, this Rugby, is the right? same person who loves Rugby. to see Rugby. old footage of the bad boys, like, give players concussions on the basketball court. But I don't know. It's just – Football, oh. like to me, doesn't, doesn't do it. And um, also, you didn't talk about Aaron Hernandez, but I like somewhat recently watched the series about him. And not only did he end up um, dying by suicide at such a young age, but he also was, he spent the last fraction of his life um, embroiled in criminal trials related to behavior that I would argue was a direct result of his Um, brain injury. So it's it's not just um, how the lives end after. I mean, it's how they live. And Aaron was so young. So sure, for some of the people, like they were older men and like their life kind of deteriorated in a lot of different ways, like related to substance abuse and whatnot. But Aaron Hernandez was such a young man and he... I mean, he just faded, like, so fast. It's just really scary. And I can't just blame the NFL because, like, even in the military, um, I I don't even want to know the statistics, really, because it'd probably be so startling of how many veteran suicides are related to this because of, you know, in combat, so many people – do actually survive explosions. And of course, they're concussed because of that. And I think recently, there has been technology developed to be worn on soldiers and Marines to kind of detect the level of certain explosions to indicate, you know, the risk of concussion and maybe how severe it was so they can get checked out. But um like, it's not just the NFL. And I, I, I wonder why we didn't or maybe we did, and maybe it just was, like, not until the movie came out that I was personally aware of it, but I feel like, why was this link not made? It can't just be because the NFL didn't, because the NFL, like, covered up a bunch of concussions, like, maybe, I don't know, maybe we didn't have, like, the technology or something, but, I mean, people have been getting concussions for so long, and it's just really, really hard to think about, all those many lives that have been affected by this and you know it's only been somewhat recently that we can understand and even still we can only diagnose this posthumously which yeah, i mean yeah. it's just so sad but i i can't it's, fully blame yeah. the nfl cuz really it's it's not just hmm. just football players that get concussions you know
1: yeah you know? that's that's really interesting cuz i i imagine um some people would say like oh they're just you know they're violent people that's why they play in the NFL and then they're going to be violent people outside of the NFL but that just it completely misrepresents the situation and it and the causality there is just so backwards mm-hmm. and it really I mean the book talks about how a couple players um, committed suicide by I think it said they shot themselves in the heart in order to preserve yeah. their brain so that it could be studied and they could that that's so heartbreaking and and it makes it so much more insidious for the nfl to be like promoting kids camps of playing football mm-hmm. and like talking about how they're improving technology to like reduce concussions It's sort of like the idea of making safer cigarettes right like you know how bad something is and you're like well we're doing our best to make it better and if you can truly eliminate the risk um then great you should do that and like you know that that's your redemption but I don't think you're ever going to be able to eliminate head injury in the NFL. Like, yeah. that's kind of the point. And that's the, the replays that get the most like, mm-hmm. coverage. Like even when there's an injury on field, it's like they show up from 10 angles because it's like, oh man, that was a bad hit. And yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of the point of the NFL. It, that, maybe that's unfair. <laughs> I see Zach uh, like someone
0: who's never watched the NFL <laughs>
1: Okay. I mean, it's the point of football. How about that? It's know. it's a contact sport.
0: Yes, it is a contact sport. Two quick factual uh, things just for the listener. One, the movie Alexis referenced is called Concussion, stars Will Smith. that came out in 2015, directed by uh, Peter Lansman. And the player that um, wrote a reference is Junior Seu. He uh, shot himself in the chest so that he could preserve his brain to be studied for brain injuries. I... I um want to also just point out one thing I would push back on is like Alexis kind of mentioned there 's potentially a direct link to the behavior that somebody has i don 't think that we have medical science that backs that up at this point. The Mayo Clinic um, is actually the website I was reading from, and some of the background information, and they are as recent as june twenty as as recent as June fourth two thousand and nineteen saying that there are no specific symptoms that have been clearly linked to CTE because we don't understand it well enough. And so while we may have some like anecdotal evidence that indicates that these might potentially be linked, I don't know if we can confidently say there are direct links to, you know, violent behavior or suicidal ideation or some of that stuff. Um, That being said, I absolutely think it's it's egregious in terms of the actions they've taken to cover it up. I think Alexis's point about the military is very interesting to me because I haven't actually considered it from that perspective. Um, in sports literature, they talk a lot about soccer, uh, women's soccer players because they don't chess the ball as much as uh, men's soccer players do because... Their chests are obviously different <laughs> organically, and that would be painful. And so they do a lot more headers, um, and that actually leads to a significant amount of concussions in women's soccer. They also talk about CTE quite a bit in hockey, but like the military perspective is, is fascinating because I have to imagine that we have pro- probably more data on that over the course of the last 50 to 60 years. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think that's a prescient note. And I, like you said, it's hard to blame the NFL uh, other than like as much as you would blame any evil – not evil – any self-motivated capitalist organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, talking about, we're talking about the the group that suspended Ray Rice, running back, who mm-hmm. hit his wife in an elevator on video two games before the video came out. And then the video went public and they were like, you know what, sorry, we meant the season. And so <laughs> – I don't know I don't know if I um like you said it's it's hard to just blame the n f l because there has to be other places where we have observed this, and there were, had to be other people who thought about studying it or maybe sort of studied it and you know that didn't go anywhere or didn't get the attention or whatever so um I mean
2: for twenty years we've been in a war that has been so like combat i i, I mean I don't know, all wars have been probably, but we've had so many thousands and thousands of people be engaged overseas and like we're just now, you know, because like people always talk about, oh, we lose 22 veterans a day and obviously, you know, the military must be aware of those things and yet it was never, like no one ever thought about it. I know science takes time and like you're saying, there's technically no... Causal link between like substance abuse and CTE or um, violent outbursts and CTE, and like personally, it just it just makes sense based on what I've read and seen that we will get there someday. But you're right, like science takes time; it's not there in black and white, and and so I don't know. Maybe the military had been looking into it, and it just took a lot of time. I don't know. Like I'm not familiar enough with how and I'm using science as a word broadly again, but I just like, I don't, I don't know who to even look to or like what we could have even done differently. You know, like it's almost like maybe this just wasn't meant to come out like until now, like, and that's a terrible answer. I just don't know what could have been different.
0: I have a couple of NFL specific points. I wonder if the military is just tough because it's not as clean. Like you're also dealing with elements of PTSD, which are linked to some of these things. Right. Or like, just general other like battle things that can happen that, that that can be studied as well. So I don't know if it's as clean, and maybe the NFL is just the most like distillate. Hey, they are hitting mm-hmm. each other in the head repeatedly, like boxing. Right? Sure. Yeah. And you know what? That's another sport where CTE has been heavily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, they they've looked into boxers' heads and found the same thing. Um, but on the NFL specific point, I, there is less there's some interesting points that are made that aren't scientifically backed about how helmet and pad technology has come a long way since 1971. And so players actually feel more protected with the helmet gear and the pad gear. So they're more likely to throw their entire body at a, um, at another athlete. And Mm -hmm. so there's, there's some arguments that are made that they tackle more aggressively. They don't wrap people up. They are using their head as a weapon, when players in the past just felt like they would break their neck or like, you know, shatter their teeth out or or something because the technology wasn't as good. The face masks were one bar or, you know, the helmets weren't made, you know, if you go back far enough, the helmets were made of leather, right? So you don't feel like this invincible gladiator um, you potentially do in 2020. I think that's interesting. And maybe there, there's some stuff that can be, I, I don't, like I said, I don't think there's science that talks about a lot of this at this point, but I, I am maybe not persuaded, but interested in some of those like historical framing arguments about that.
1: Mm-hmm. I think the same is true for boxing where um, putting on the, the gloves lets you you know hit harder and take more hits. Um, and whereas it might not like cut up your face or break any bones, the force that's being exerted on your skull is the same, if not more, because you're going all out. And that means that just like your brain literally like rattling back and forth in your skull is like bad for you. (laughs) Like, I mean, I I would have a hard time if someone was like, actually, like multiple concussions are fine. Like, don't worry about it. Like, it seems pretty obvious that, you know, getting hit in the head a bunch is really bad bad for your brain. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like you were saying about soccer, um, my one of my little cousins got a couple concussions from soccer and had to like you know, sit out a bunch of games and, um, he really wants to play soccer. Um, and just, I I think with soccer, it's way more easy to be like, Hey, like this season in our school district, we're going to say, you can't head the ball. You know, it's like, Mm. okay. Like, you know, that's, that's bad for the team because we got some people who are really good at heading the ball, but like, it doesn't end the sport. Whereas football, it's like, You can't, like, you can't adjust the game. Like, they've done some stuff. Like, um, I know, like, helmet-to-helmet collisions, right, as a receiver's catching the ball is, like, I think it's a personal injury. Most most
0: helmet-to-helmet hits are illegal, if not all, at this point.
1: Yeah, like, unnecessary uh, roughness or, you know, they protect quarterbacks a lot. Um, So, I think they're getting – there but i don't know if they can ever like reduce the risk of getting hit in the head in football like it's kind of the name of the game what if you yeah. just
2: went to flag football
1: <laughs> not as, fun. Not How as do fun i wouldn't watch that <laughs> yeah.
2: I well, why is think. it where not as fun
0: probably,
1: this is where we probably disagree we we need need violence or...
2: yeah exactly
0: no it's less i i think that it's more of an athletic feat like flag football is you, it's more of a track sport than it is like a um than an endurance sport or like a quick burst speed sport um i think where we probably disagree is you said you don't know if you, they, they can eliminate that risk my, my perspective is less about elimination and more about education and like making sure people are aware of what the trade-offs are because the financial incentive to be a professional football player is enormous And also, if you look at the demographics of professional football players, it is one of the only places where low-income individuals can pretty quickly go to being millionaires and change the lives of not only themselves, but their families. It's not a bunch of rich white kids that are present in the NFL today. It actually indexes really heavily to lower-income individuals. That can be read in one of two ways, one of which being saying, like, okay, they're, they're, you know – lower income individuals might not be as educated on the health impacts, but the other one, uh, the other argument could be that there's just more poor people than there are rich people in the world. And so the talent pool of like athletic individuals is bigger on that side. Mm. E- either way, I, I'm less concerned about eliminating a hundred percent of risk. I'm more concerned about mitigating as much risk as we can and educating every individual at the lower levels of, you know, what, what CTE is, how it can be aggressively ramped up from like the way that we tackle in 2020 and probably like educating people on how to tackle differently or how to play the sport a little bit differently because I, I really do think it is a lifeline for many individuals that maybe will never have an opportunity to make that kind of money for them and their families and and change those positions in, in similar ways. I just think it's an unrealistic expectation to be like, oh, I'll go to college and you can do the same thing. Like, <laughs> okay, sure, you know. Alexis. Okay, a couple
2: things. Broker? For one, that argument to me, just isn't very persuasive because I feel like it's literally less than 0.1% of people who make it into any type of professional sport, let alone the specific sport of football. I could be totally wrong, but I- That's I fine. I don't bet. think that
0: engages with the individual argument that I'm making. I'm not talking at like- Okay, I have one for the Or argument. population percentage <laughs>
2: level. So I think that I would kind of agree And in a lot of worlds, I do agree with your stance on like, let's educate people and let them make an informed decision about the risk that we want to take, as opposed to trying to get that down to zero. And I think an example of where I do take that is with um, the sugar beverages. What was the name? Sugar sweetened
1: beverages. Yes. So
2: I don't necessarily, I'm totally open to being persuaded, but as of right now, I don't really think that coke should be taxed i think it's just pretty patronizing honestly he even wrote about it in a way that i found was pretty patronizing but when we look at this issue um i don't trust people to be educated that their children are safe to play football and although sugar has long-term health effects like obesity diabetes all those things i think that over a I don't know again this is something i just don't know but my gut tells me that the health implications of sugar occur over a longer period of time and a longer period of persisting use of sugar. Whereas you can play football as a young kid for two or three years, which isn't really very long, and get a number of pretty good hits and pretty good concussions. And especially when your brain is still developing, like our frontal lobe isn't done until we're in our 20s. So that to me is, is just it's a position where i don't feel as comfortable taking the stance of let's just educate people and you know grown people who are about to sign on to the nfl is is different but when it comes to like the kids and if you guys say that the nfl is actually trying to market towards kids which i'd have to just trust you because i don't i've never seen
0: yeah they do like no that's legit uh,
2: like a commercial of that personally but that to me i just like i can't trust i don't trust people enough to like especially like if there's a generational thing of like, I love football, so I've always wanted my son to play football, and so he's going to play football, and then by the time he realizes that maybe that wasn't a great idea,
0: it's too late. Sure. I, I think our main disagreement is where you said I don't trust people, whereas I am more inclined to let people make individual decisions than let states rule on decisions for people. However, on the net benefits level of this discussion, I'd love to talk about obesity. From 1999 to 2000 to 2017 to 2018, the prevalence of obesity increased from 30% to 42% in America. That's a problem that's only getting worse, whereas I think the NFL is actively attempting to mitigate risk, whereas, like, sugary beverage industries are not doing the same thing. Like I said, for the NFL, I do believe that it is financially motivated. That being said, I still believe they're making those, like, attempting to employ those changes, mm-hmm. right? I, I'm hap- like, I don't, I don't think that we're ever going to agree on the, like, education um, on the NFL level, probably. But I, I would trust parents to make their own decisions about their own children's health because I, I don't think that anybody else has a right to <laughs> kind of make those decisions for an individual. And, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have a larger meta discussion on, like, autonomy of children or something but I I think that this is an individual rights split that we're just, we probably won't resolve. I do think obesity impacts way more people than CTE does and we're less uh, inclined to attack the obesity issue in America today than we are the CTE issue. I think it's, the NFL thing is like so egregious at first blush that we maybe like fetishize it as a worse issue, but I guarantee you more people die from obesity than die from CTE.
2: But weren't we just having a conversation about how you're not even comfortable saying that there is probably a relationship between violence or substance use disorders and CTE? I, I but said you're comfortable not to proof. say you're comfortable to say that CTE veritably affects less people than obesity.
0: Yes, because yes, because if you add up all of the players that play NFL um, football and have like died early deaths, if you assume that those relationships are intact then you can definitely like draw some numbers. And like you said, it's less than 1% of individuals that are playing NFL football. Guess what? More than 1% of individuals are consuming sugary beverages.
1: Well, I think the book also talks about how an industry line is that um, individuals who make it to the NFL, it's kind of a survival of the fittest set up where people who have been playing since high school and college, a lot of those people get injured and have brain injuries. And so they don't make it into the NFL. So this 0.01% of the population that gets rich in the NFL might not reflect the actual cost of playing NFL in high school or NFL in high school, but, you know. And and I don't want to mitigate that damage because there is evidence that indicates that, like,
0: even if you just play four years of football, you know, depending on how many concussions you got or how intense those concussions were, you can have, like, similarly degenerative brains after death because of CTE. It's but it is something we don't understand well for sure. And like mm-hmm. and I guess the question we've also, is, we've also how... seen posthumous we've also like seen autopsies occur after deaths that don't show CTE in different NFL players' brains. So it's not something that we can say, yes, this directly causes this, and yes, these are the exact symptoms for that. But I do think if you assume those symptoms are correct, it probably will not compare to the impact of obesity in America. Is like and- the specific contention I'm going for.
1: Yeah. And I think that gets to how certain do you need to be to take action? Because, you know, even in the 1920s and 30s, they were painting the backs of shaved rats with tobacco juices and stuff, and they were seeing cancer grow. And they were like, oh, cigarettes probably cause cancer. And there was a lot of internal work at the tobacco industry um, scientific labs that basically showed, like, cigarettes definitely cause cancer. but. There was still controversy up until, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s when when, uh, Rush Limbaugh said like, oh, cigarettes don't cause cancer. And I think what the point of this book is, is saying that um, when you're considering the causality of these different problems, industry is tipping the scales. So it's a bit hypocritical of them, of the industry to say like, people just need to be informed and make informed decisions and then leverage their multi-billion dollar research budgets to try to obfuscate the actual causality of these different things. So he goes into suggestions about how to make that science unbiased. But Zach, I wanted to talk about one thing you said, which was that um, it's- Good faith, I, Bad faith. Just, that's, that's the split as on what you just said. Happy to hear what your next
0: point is. But just like I want to indicate that although my position might be like individuals should be educated it is not like educated with bad faith arguments i think that is evil Mm -hmm. and egregious just
1: yeah yeah that's a good point um when you were saying like um the nfl is a way for a lot of people of color or people of low socioeconomic status to kind of get out of that and sort of like make a lot of money um be famous like get into the limelight i think that's true but on a more systems level isn't it isn't it bad that we're forcing that decision like what if they could play baseball and have the same thing happen like i don't know it's probably true for baseball too why does it have to be or like boxing like wouldn't it be better for us to have football as that as opposed to boxing or baseball as opposed to football or like i don't know and and i agree what you're saying with what you're saying like people in baseball sometimes get hit with the ball and have- it's actually much less of a problem in baseball like the main ones that people talk about in sports literature
0: like football boxing soccer are kind of the ones that
1: come hmm. up okay yeah
0: but it's possible like you do get hit in the head once in a while in baseball or could potentially have a concussion just concussions are much more rare in baseball and I hear what you're saying like and I think there is a discussion to be had about like maybe you just have other sports but like I'm not sure how that plays out I guess like if you're trying like does that look like a government ban on football like
1: is that Well, it could yeah I don't think I like, think I that would think, be extreme and it I'm would never I'm not happen. sure what the
0: realistic implications are other than people deciding this is a dangerous sport and I will have my kids play another sport which is a trend I already think we're seeing in in terms of like you look at athletics departments at the youth level football actually has kind of gone to tackle football specifically has gone down like over the last decade or so yeah
1: or maybe at, like the school board decides to direct more of the budget towards you know baseball versus football or they stop advertising their football program on their website or you know, they make their baseball games as big of a deal as their football games or like whatever, whatever it may be. I don't think it has to be like the federal government has just banned football in the United States. Like that would, I think there's different ways of, of doing that. But Alexis, what you, you were talking about with sugar sweetened beverages. Um, do you think that cigarettes should be taxed? Ooh. Um, Ooh. yeah, I see. Why would you tax cigarettes and not sugar sweetened beverages?
2: Because I, I feel like there are already um, restrictions on cigarettes that are not applied to soda beyond just the tax. As in, okay, yeah. I think the smoking age was just recently raised, at least in Kentucky, to twenty-one when it was mm-hmm. eighteen. So that's obviously pretty fluid and. Um, no such restrictions on soda exist beyond in some states there is a tax. So if, I mean, if there was another example that was a little bit more similar, maybe Mm. I see your point, but I feel like with, with cigarettes, it's already something that is so just clearly bad for you that we have a limit on it, just like alcohol or being able to get, you know, medical marijuana card or something like that.
1: When I asked you that question, Alexis, I was sort of drawing a lot of similarities that I think you're right to point out are are not. They're kind of false equivalencies. I think mainly it's that cigarettes are addictive um, and that Mm. um, there's no safe level of smoking, but there is a safe level of drinking soda. (laughs) Um,
2: And another thing is that like, I feel like cigarettes were up until vaping really took off like the primary product that was your option to consume tobacco unless you had like a a pipe or something but with sugar sure the the beverages are particular particularly i guess bad for you because like with sugary food at least it curbs your hunger which i would argue because it has like so few nutrients it wouldn't it doesn't really keep you full but um especially for someone in, in extreme poverty like I'm I'm sure like anything will make you feel uh full and, and like beverages it, that's just not an argument there but I think if it does become a little bit more of a slippery slope just because it's like oh okay so are they coming for our candy bars next because even though technically you eat that instead of drinking it it still has you know maybe, maybe. even more sugar and should. yeah so I, I don't know for me I think cigarettes it's like cigarettes. Is, was for a long time like the only product that did that specific thing whereas Mm -hmm. if you want to talk about products that contribute to our obesity epidemic and a lot of other diseases it's it's really not just the beverages by any means
1: I think it's a really good argument to say um, that the only reason you tax this product is because the companies selling the product aren't internalizing the true cost of their product. So it's like cigarettes, cigarette companies are selling, you know, cigarettes for a dollar for like 10 cigarettes, but Medicaid is forced to pick up the bill for lung cancer, COPD, other forms of cancer, heart disease, where our government, where it's like, they're not internalizing that problem. It's the same with polluters, right? Like if you can just dump all of your waste into a river and then, you know, wash your hands of that and be like, we're good. We've made our product for so cheap and never, never internalize that cost, then someone else is forced to foot the bill. And I think with, with sugary beverages, like
3: mm-hmm.
1: if there is good data to show that just the sugary beverages are to blame for like incredibly mm-hmm. high medical bill costs, um, it's, sort of, it's sort of just asking people and corporations to like realize that cost at the point of sale not as something that happens down the line that we can never truly know when it happens it's like this is the actual cost of of buying this product and that's gonna help pay for your medical bills when we pay your medical bills do you
2: think that's just intense sorry like that's a crazy thing to think about um that I don't know just a like really clear link of like this is how much of a burden is being placed on our Medicaid system and we can source it directly to these drinks like I'm I'm sure that we will get to a point where we see something like that well that's but, what sorry, happened Zach.
1: with uh with cigarettes just very briefly the master settlement agreement around the beginning of this century was like Literally, just like Medicaid can't pay for all these cigarette deaths, so we're going to tax. Mm. We're going to take money from the cigarette companies and pay these medical bills. The problem is when you say we're going to tax this stuff on education and build roads and like build all this great infrastructure. It's like, okay, now you're just taxing the poor. (laughs) Like,
0: do you think that any industry is internalizing the costs um, in that way? Because I think very few would be. I think that under your framing, you could say like, "Let's tax, let's tax the meat industry because it leads to higher levels of heart uh, disease um, in America." It's like specifically red meat, like, is a good example of that, or like salt. Let's tax the salt industry because Mm -hmm. it leads to higher blood pressure and hypertension. Or like, I think that's. I would be, (laughs) I would be um, nervous about that specific framing because it probably leaves almost every industry exposed to that maybe maybe we should maybe we should ask that of every industry but i think that's absolutely not true in terms of today like if we look at the aggregate of industries you would have like patagonia maybe (laughs) that's like taking into account their Mm -hmm. environmental
1: impact or or anybody that uses fossil fuels fuels. anybody that you know has sweatshops Mm -hmm. i think maybe the point is that yeah, great, tax. Right? like Nike, J.C. Penney, like any yeah. any retail brand, because they all use
0: like cheap labor abroad, and many of them have had sweatshop scandals. But
1: sorry. I think if I was a libertarian, I would say the government shouldn't be paying for anybody's healthcare in the first place. So taxing that isn't gonna shouldn't go towards paying their medical bills because the government shouldn't be paying their medical bills. So I think I think it's only an issue when the taxes can go towards the solution. You know what I mean? But can't they in the meat industry? Um, like that's a good example to start
0: at. Like, yeah. if there's really clear mm-hmm. links that that leads to heart disease. There's really clear links that that at least plays an impact in certain like uh, uh, um, uh, certain yeah. diseases like obesity and hypertension and high blood pressure.
1: I don't know. That's a good question. I think you're right to say it's a slippery slope. It'd be kind of like an assessment versus a tax if we're getting technical, because like you're sort of. You're taxing a service directly for the solution to the problems that service or good provides. But yeah, I recently learned the difference between a tax and an assessment. So don't quote me on that. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think we should force companies to internalize all of the external problems of their products?
0: I wish we would recognize our power as an electorate and make those decisions ourselves because we don't have to rely on the government to do that. As in a functioning economy, we can't be better educated and make purchasing decisions that reflect that. I'm not a total free market capitalist. Like I think that there absolutely needs to like, I'm actually, I push back on a lot of capitalist things. Right. But I, I do get, I do get nervous about that specific framing that we're mm-hmm. doing. Right. Because I don't know, how clean those distinctions can be drawn. I don't know how clean those costs can be calculated. And while I certainly am a fan of like taxing the cigarette industry because of the nefarious harms they've committed in the past, that's kind of why I look at that as a benefit, not necessarily because like they should pay for the the negative health benefits. Because at this point, I kind of think that people get that cigarettes cause negative health benefits and it kind of Burden shifts over to us to stop buying those things or to get like those hmm. find substitutes or alternatives to like those products that we know are extremely health uh, health negative. So yeah. I, I don't know. Like I'm open to hearing like tax solutions, but I I think that that would be really difficult to implement. I think it'd be difficult to calculate. I think um, you probably wouldn't be able to resolve all of those solutions in that world. I, I think that healthcare might actually get worse if we're if we're saying it's all funded at that level, but
3: hmm. I,
0: I don't know. like I, I don't know if I have good answers, but I, I get nervous about like framing it as you have to pay for the costs of your product to the world mm-hmm. or to individuals. Yeah, Alexa, I, what, do you, what do you think? <laughs>
2: um, I don't know. I mean, I would rather the corporations pay for it than um, a person who is obese having to pay more for their their health insurance or even a person who smokes honestly because I do believe that obviously addiction is a real thing and I mean I know from not personal experience but um, I've seen people go through quitting and it looks really fucking hard so I mean I don't know I I would hate for it to get to that point with anything and it's also like if it does get to the point where people who are obese or being like penalized in that way, then it's like a matter of time before they come for me because I eat too much pasta or they come for you because you drink too much kombucha. I don't know. Like every single yeah, thing yeah. can so like be pe- bad for you. Right? Like the, like-
0: that the harm is being inflicted upon are the ones that end up having to pay the price in a world where we are taxing the products to resolve that harm, right? I'm not sure how an assessment plays into this. So that's, I am um, yeah, less informed than, than you are on that one. <laughs> but yeah, I, I tend to like, that's the other problem. I didn't even, that's a great point, Alexis. Like I did not even bring that up, but like, you're actually extracting the monetary like pound of flesh from the people that are actually being hurt by it in the long run if you tax, tax them in that way.
1: Yeah, cigarette companies too. If a tax rolls out on cigarettes, they'll bump up the price way more than the tax. And use the taxes cover. Be like, hey, sorry, cigarettes just went up two dollars a pack government. because of you know this tax. When the tax is like ten cents a pack, so it's like, oh, those government regulators. Meanwhile, cigarette companies make bank. So, and this is why I would prefer us to just like
0: make decisions as a, not as a block, but like recognize certain common interests that we have on a like functioning economy individual level, because mm-hmm. the government is never going to do the best job of looking out for us. Corporations are for damn sure not going to be doing a good job of looking out for us but but we can make purchasing decisions that like reflect our values and like phase out some of these companies by just not giving them our money but I recognize the difficulty in that and the um, I also recognize how long something like that takes it's not something that happens overnight it is the hard way it is not the easy way
1: mm-hmm. yeah and please I think
2: make that... me... sorry oh, no go please go I don't even know if this is related to what we're talking about anymore uh, because some of what you guys are saying is like way over my head, but it just really made me cringe how this man, David Michaels, wrote about the soda thing and how like where it has been implemented, it has been – I guess, relatively successful, and he was like, well, you know, of course, it's more successful in poor communities, because they're not able to pay more, Um, but in the long term, it'll benefit them so much, and it was just like, dude, you're not their dad. You're admitting that this is literally disparately affecting poor people, and that the rich people still get to drink their coke, and like, you're just, to me, that just feels super, it was just gross to me like sure like poor people have enough to worry about and they just they just fucking love mountain dew okay and now they don't even get to drink their mountain dew because then otherwise they can't afford milk but the rich people get to keep on going about their business like it's just a gross i can't believe he wrote that sentence because yeah. it just read really poorly to me and like patronizing um so i don't know i i definitely would rather take an approach of what i I feel like Zach's approach is a little bit more like, let's just try to make these decisions collectively and actually understand the value of what we're doing instead of like just mandating it and and having like seemingly no care for the fact that it's probably only going to matter to poor people. Like, poor people are probably the ones who quit smoking regardless of how physically uncomfortable it was. And the rich people just keep buying ridiculously expensive cigarettes despite the tax like I I don't know that for sure but I'm guessing
0: yeah well and like taxes aren't as I could probably speak better to this but like cigarette taxes have been effective in some instances but not in every instance right like I I don't know I'm a little bit speculatory but I feel like I read something at some point somewhere that like they're not always (laughs) as effective at driving down purchases as we think they are
1: yeah I mean you're gonna have less price elasticity with an addictive drug so like People, you know, if you're addicted to cigarettes and they cost a dollar more, it's like, I'm addicted to cigarettes, so, like, I'll just eat less, I guess. Um, But the most price-sensitive groups are oftentimes underage kids and pregnant women who have less spending power. So, yes, the rich kid is going to be able to buy just as many cigarettes through his big brother, but, you know, kids have less, you know money to spend on cigarettes. So they're going to buy less if they cost more. Um, I do agree. That is super paternalistic to say. Um, And I think education is always going to be the better way to go. Um, I saw a presentation when I was in Colorado for a lot of um, Latinx communities there who were disproportionately affected by um, a lot of their kids had really bad dental problems because um, there were a lot of sugary drinks that they were being given um, without like brushing their teeth or anything like that, so they had a lot of like kind of like mangled teeth and palate problems, evenly from kids developing with like a like a um, like a bottle of sh- of sugary juice in their mouth or something like this. And it wasn't like some outside group was like, "This is a problem we need to fix." It was like the community was was telling scientists and telling researchers, "This is a big problem. How do we avoid this?" And then the researchers were saying, well, sugar sweetened beverages are like a big part of this. Um, And, you know, like we didn't go out to eat as much as I would have liked as a kid because it was expensive Mm -hmm. and because we made like budgeting decisions that way. Um, I don't don't know. That is, that is paternalistic. And I think education is a better way to go, but you've got to, peel back all of the work the industry is doing to convince you that its products are completely safe and have no negative consequences. Um, People do trust industries too much. We got to, we got to educate on that front a little better. Like Volkswagen. I thought they were an amazing company. Um, and I was shocked, shocked to read the chapter on Volkswagen. Um, Alexis, I know you took particular interest in that, in that chapter. what did you think?
2: Wow, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have like particular fondness in my heart for Volkswagen, like oh, cute cars or whatever. Not the top of my personal bucket oh, list Zach. for a car. Um, but wow, this is this is pretty <laughs> gnarly. So my recap is not going to be as eloquent as Zach's. I'm so sorry about that, listeners. Zach's, Zach's better than you.
1: both of us.
0: Yeah, that is so not true. both of them have uh, <laughs> graduate degrees. I'm the I'm the common folk here.
2: And this is proof that you should not go to higher education, folks. At least beyond a bachelor's, it is not worth it. Nope. Um, okay, so basically, okay, Volkswagen was doing really well internationally. But in order to be number one for auto manufacturing in in the world, of course, you got to get good in the United States, right? Which at the time, they were not number one, but they were doing okay. So they started ramping up their technology. And unfortunately, at the same time that they came out with their new diesel vehicle engine, the United States very unfortunately had just increased its standard for NOx, which I think is a compound released from diesel exhaust, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That is very, very bad for anyone who breathes <laughs> it. And it's it's kind of one of those things that i guess is like almost objectively understood in the like scientific community now i'm scared to use the word science but you could almost (laughs)
0: call it a noxious fume oh my god
2: they're wow okay (laughs) nox nox did everyone know about nox before
0: no no i'm
1: no
2: okay 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 i didn't know if this was like a well-known thing it's
1: it's well-known in public health but it's not like a common term. Oh,
2: those nerds. All right. Yeah.
1: Uh,
2: (laughs) So anyway, so basically it was like, great. So we are not going to be able to release this cool new engine in the United States unless we figure this shit out. So they had two options. The first was a selective catalytic reduction, which filters the NOx, and it would make the cars a whopping $500 more expensive. When when we're thinking about an automobile, to me that doesn't really seem that much more expensive because you're spending like literally dozens of thousands of dollars. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um doesn't. but dozens of thousands.
0: I love dollars. that. That's amazing. <laughs> Ten thirty at night everyone.
2: It's passed by time. Okay, and then the other option, which spoiler alert, this is the one they choose, is something called a Okay, wait, no, it's a NOx trap in tandem with a device, which I swear to God, this is what it's called a defeat device, which if that does not sound sketchy, <laughs> I don't know what does. So basically what it is, which honestly part of me does not understand how this even works, but basically it's a device that makes <laughs> it makes the car know when it's being tested for emissions. I don't know how it makes the car smart enough to understand that. It's like Um,
0: something like the steering wheel's not moving and it's on rollers on the road.
2: How would it know that it was on rollers?
1: Cars man. I don't
0: that's where you got me. The steering (laughs) wheel made sense.
2: (laughs) I was like, if y'all are smart enough to come up with this, y'all can figure out how to do this in a better way. But anyway, (laughs) so the end, so so with the Nox trap, defeat device thing. The engine's emissions are measured by the testing machine and it would be commendably low, 40 times lower than under normal driving conditions in the real world. And furthermore, it only kicks in when the device is testing, so it's not even something that has to be, you know, in use when like during the whole lifespan of the car. No, it's it's super smart. I don't understand. Technology is like wild. But anyway, so let's just talk about it because I think we know what we need to know, which is that Volkswagen, they fucked up. (laughs) They did. (laughs) What else is there?
0: One other background (laughs) point before we jump into it. When they first started, like some red flags started raising about this defeat device, Volkswagen ran a recall on all the cars that had the defeat device <laughs> oh, yeah. and made the defeat device stronger. They made it better.
1: So, <laughs> like... <laughs> not Aww. only did they
0: install this thing, they doubled down when it started to cause
1: a lot. It's so bad.
2: This apparently it's has its map. own um, gate name because I guess all big scandals have a a, a gate name. Yeah. And this one is Dieselgate. Just for anyone <laughs> who's wondering,
1: it's a gate. It's for sure a gate.
2: It's a gate. Yeah, it's a gate.
1: I was so blown away. I thought maybe like you know they cooked the books and like you know over X million number of cars, they did some big meta analysis and sort of fudged the numbers, but they went through the process of designing and installing this yeah. defeat device on every single car rather than just make it a little bit more expensive like oh they're gonna test us let's just cheat and if we get caught <laughs> we'll just do it better next time
0: also i don't know how their factory works there's probably a lot less humans in the factory that i work in but like what did you tell the guy was <laughs> installing that it's like oh no that's that's good for emissions.
1: <laughs> like <laughs> Like I just don't get how they got away with this for several years. <laughs> Some mechanics like, "Yeah, this seems bad. Like, what are we doing?" Yeah, can you not? Can you only go to like a
0: Volkswagen dealership to get your Volkswagen worked on, or like did no? Nobody- <laughs> <laughs> like that's that is a question for sure. <laughs>
1: And the way they found out, right, is researchers were testing emissions, but just driving them on the highway and testing them in like not normal conditions. And they looked at their numbers and they're like, Hold on, this is like 40 times higher than it should be. We probably did something wrong.
0: They thought the the, the recording machine was broke. <laughs> they thought their equipment was busted because it was so much oh higher than the Volkswagen was claiming. The story I just obvious. don't
2: if you were on on like on the market in
3: the
0: for
2: market. oh my god, am I okay? You're I'm good having in a, the market. I'm having a stroke. If you were in the market for like a you. really reliable, you know, car, okay, let's say you are, and and there was a company that had a really new and en- a good new engine, and it was really reliable, it had great reviews, and it was competitive with like the fucking Prius or something, and you had to pay an extra five hundred dollars and level off your urea solution periodically would that completely be a deal breaker for you
0: (laughs) because that's the alternative solution right that volkswagen had come up with it's like either we install this cheat device or we make it charge
2: 500 more and there's like this solution that helps i guess filter the nox
0: they could have added a filter yeah instead of a defeat device the user just would have had to add some fluids like
2: that. did they just feel like they would be fucked in the US market if they had to charge what is ultimately a minuscule fraction of the overall cost of a fucking <laughs> I'm car
1: change my oil and my urea every gonna, like two like, years, years. <laughs> it's, it's <America.
2: laughs> which i guess you could also just pee into it because yeah
1: that <laughs> so, could have been their whole <laughs> selling point the ads would have been pure gold <laughs> clarify that for people listening. Because fire. golden chat. Wait, no, that's not what I mean.
2: Urea is a. Com-
1: <laughs> that's the cold open.
2: <laughs> Urea is a compound also the... found in human urine. So not
1: Urea exclusively. W- what would have been used in the filter if they didn't go to the defeat device route? Yeah, and uh, like what apparently- a good way to
2: like recycle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great
1: with the hippie community. just dehydrate (laughs) yourself beforehand and yeah it's funny the the company proposed a study right where they would put people in rooms and filter in the gases from the engine and then like test how the people responded then they were like the pr company was like yeah uh putting people in rooms and pumping in gas might kind of remind us of our founder that might be a problem. Oh, I didn't know
2: that Volkswagen was like tied to Nazis. Oh, that's Hitler's yeah. car.
1: Yeah.
3: Oh yeah. That's I
0: amazing.
2: didn't even know that. Oh my god. Wait, this wasn't the monkey chapter, was it?
0: Yes, it was. Uh, I think it was. It's yeah. Monkeys in a room. Instead of doing that human trial that Rotor just um so just some background. So they uh Volkswagen was like, okay, hey, we're going to talk about how new diesel is better than old diesel for, for lung inflammation and like respiratory disorders. So they proposed the study that Rotor just mentioned, which was like, well, let's throw some people in a room. We'll pump some filtered air and then we'll do some old diesel and then we'll do some new diesel, like emissions, like out of the tailpipe of your car, right? And then. <laughs> The PR company pushed back, right? And they hey, uh... <laughs> no one, let's do monkeys instead. So they did a trial with monkeys doing that exact thing.
2: <laughs> and literally, in order to keep the monkeys that have thumbs, people, okay, and kind of look like us, kind of, <laughs> they had to be watching cartoons. During this experiment, in order to not fucking panic. Can you imagine? I mean, you don't even have to be an animal rights person, but can you imagine literally walking, like taking a wrong turn in like a lab and seeing these fucking (laughs) monkeys like walking on treadmills watching Family Guy?
1: (laughs) With a Prius hooked up to the, the Volkswagen bug. Just, oh man.
2: What hideous cars. I'm just. I'm gonna just Even rail a on Volkswagen for the rest of my <laughs> fucking life. I'm done.
0: Okay, I yeah. sent. I sent the uh, Hitler thing to you, Alexis. So you. Thank you. Context. I'm gonna. I'm gonna link that in the comments if nobody knew that Volkswagen related to Nazis. Wait, Nazism, that's like fully Nazis.
2: a bunch of Nazis. Oh my god.
0: Yeah, like it's a thing. It's it's a real thing. I'll link that in the description. Excuse me for anybody that wants to see um, Hitler with a Volkswagen. But
1: German engineering, yeah. though can't be beat <laughs> at least in the in the in a standard test procedure environment you know on I the, hope
2: someone is as mad about the monkeys as i am that is so fucking oh, sad
0: i'm mad and also you know what what's even funnier not funnier what's even like worse <laughs> is maybe, this story is maybe the funny funniest one in the book because you're like what the fuck this happened in <laughs> 2017 or something super recent
1: but and all the the corp the C suite people are like, oh, we didn't know anything about it. Like,
0: yeah, yeah, for sure. There's several tendrils of this that we should continue to to discuss.
1: Just but like, some rogue scientists <laughs> installing parts in our cars. I don't know. I don't know who did the study or commissioned <laughs> it.
0: But uh, at the end of the study, they they got they got weird results. Like um, the old diesel and the new diesel, like were showing similar, or maybe the new diesel was showing worse. I can't remember which, but it wasn't the results they wanted. And it turns out they, they 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 bought a bunch of female monkeys instead of male monkeys, which the contract specified like the first scientific like um you know whatever we're going to do this study we mandate it, it's going to be mm-hmm. male monkeys I guess that's because female monkeys have like a higher variability in respiratory disorders um the book chap touches on this for like two sentences, and so like not only did they do this horrible study. They did it wrong and probably got wrong results. And then they published those wrong results and just stripped out the new diesel data. And they were like, you know what? <laughs> diesel is worse for you than filtered air? And it's like, no shit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and the scientists too, they were getting paid like $70,000 for this whole huge experiment. And they were like, hey, can you just pay us? Like, here's the results. Can we just Please get just paid? See. <laughs> and the company's like, nope, got to publish it. And they're like, okay, fine. We'll submit this paper. And they're like, uh, we don't like that conclusion. Can you just like change the whole study and then also get it published? And then we'll pay you. <laughs> <laughs> so they had a ransom. A... They didn't uh, pay the scientists yeah. until they
0: got the, the study results that they wanted. So this is the kind of evil capitalism <laughs> that we're dealing with. <laughs> Uh, but the
2: thing is, is I could probably look into like
0: the
2: fucking Dodge or Toyota and find just as much,
3: more
0: probably more stuff. But... Maybe you could probably use like uh, sweat lodges. Um. Oh, best part about this, they probably don't use sweat lodges. What's
1: a sweat lodge?
0: I don't know. I,
1: <laughs> is I, you know. in a sweat shop?
0: <laughs> I'm drinking a, a heretic.
1: <laughs> a you can't sauna. handle the juice. It's
0: about an 8.5 <laughs> percent alcohol level. So I'm. I'm so with that, feeling
1: good. I want to go to a sweat lodge.
0: <laughs> Best God. part about this story is that at the end of it, they didn't. They didn't um, like. <laughs> the executives didn't anticipate that they were going to be charged. They were like, "Ah, oh, this will blow over." <laughs> the one executive was like, "I'm going to go to vacation in Miami." So he gets on a plane, goes <laughs> to Miami, immediately gets arrested, currently <laughs> in prison, uh, serving like seven years in a penitentiary for all this. Um, because he was like, yeah, I'm fine. Let me go to the country where I'm being it's indicted
1: on good. federal crimes. he's <laughs> 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 oh, ridiculous, oh, man.
2: Dieselgate for you.
1: <laughs> Dieselgate, I'll never forget. Well, uh, we're going to move on to our third and final <laughs> chapter we're going to cover. Um, but before we do that, I want to let you know that this podcast is not brought to you by Nutrivape. Can you touch your toes? Having trouble sleeping? Can't get your Fortnite dance just right? Sounds like you need Nutravape. Nutravape offers all 10 essential vitamins and minerals your body needs to grow big and strong. Bathed in a mild PG-VG blend with vanilla extract, it's practically a serving of vegetables. Jump higher, breathe deeper, be smarter with Nutravape. Coming soon to a federally subsidized school lunch near you if you live in a district uh, managed by Representative Duncan Hunter, NutraVape. How many of our listeners know who Duncan Hunter is? <laughs> I, I didn't even know who Duncan Hunter is. I like the least accessible joke we've ever taken. <laughs> his, his motto is, we vape, we vote. So, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's our resident uh, vape guy.
0: I don't know if I'd get along with him.
1: Yeah, pro- probably not. Or maybe, who knows? I don't know who he is. He might be a nice guy. Um, all right, before we uh, wrap up today, we want to go into one final chapter, and that's the chapter on, it's, it's called Deadly Dust, and it's about silica dust. This is a pretty dry chapter, um, and that's not just because it deals with sand, It's it's a chapter that goes into the weeds of a federal regulation under our author's OSHA administration. Um, It really goes through how, okay, so here's the situation. You cut a brick, you cut granite, it's gonna produce dust. And when you inhale this dust, we've known for generations and generations, even going back to the, the Roman stone cutters who are building roads, when you inhale all this dust, or it turns out silica more precisely, you get something called silicosis. And the um, IARC- Bad news. Yeah, it's bad news because IARC has said that um, this is a carcinogen. And IARC is the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Um, many other agencies have included that it's a carcinogen. It's bad for you. It creates a little scarring in your lungs. You can't breathe. You get cancer. Nobody wants that. And the solution, it turns out, is really simple. You just quit inhaling dust. And if you produce dust, you just wet it down or vacuum it away. Problem solved. But the industries that would be affected by a regulation mandating rejection of that dust, they hate this idea. They hate any 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 form of regulation because that means, oh, you've got to get new vacuums. You've got to wet down your dust. You've got to protect your workers. And that's just going to be so expensive. It's going to crash the whole economy it's going to destroy our way of life or at least that's what they said um now our author goes into depth on how he pushed for regulation of silica it was one of the first things that he wanted to do um, and how eventually he got regulation passed um through osha which is the let's see, what does osha stand for alexis
2: i was actually just thinking that what I, OSHA i'll tell you for, i'll
1: tell you yeah osha zach go
0: I think OSHA is a moderately credible organization. No, what
1: does it stand for? Oh my god! (laughs) They're better than the WHO.
0: That's you didn't
2: even have the right question. OSHA OSHA is
0: the Occupational Safety and Health Administration.
2: Come
1: on. Did you look that up? (laughs) Okay. You didn't hear my keyboard. (laughs) No, uh, everyone should know what OSHA is. It's the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. They make a lot of regulations about. workplace standards for health and safety. They make sure you don't, you know, store big heavy objects above your head when you're using a forklift, so they don't fall and crush you and you die. And Um, also that
2: you strap into your lifts.
1: Exactly. Someone
2: fell off at Michael's previous job from a cherry picker, which is like, it can go up as tall as a building. Thankfully, he was on so many illicit drugs that he hardly felt it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) <laughs> I guess
2: He did live So I'm not like you That's
0: know. good That's Anyway
2: good.
0: You
1: So know, in addition Go ahead I'm not In addition good. to That's mandating good. You don't drive a forklift <laughs> Under intoxicating drugs um, They'll set things called Permissible exposure limits To different um, chemicals um, And there there are voluntary Permissible exposure limits Adopted by different you know Organizations or corporations But there are also mandated ones That OSHA um, requires. So through a long regulatory po- process, OSHA finally passed regulations on silica dust, but not without encountering a lot of opposition from big silica. Well, not really big silica, but every industry who would could possibly be affected by this regulation. And he ran into a few different common strategies from the tobacco industry to the fossil fuel industry to big sugar to big insert industry name here. Um, and those, those tactics were essentially to um, consider the weight of the evidence. That's a common phrase and say, oh, we need to consider the weight of the evidence. And really, we can't ever reach a conclusion that would say, you know, silicon's are actually that bad for you. Um, they would do things like offer a risk assessment with um, very low exposure limits being not problematic for health. Um, which is maybe a not very efficient way of saying that, but if you'll bear with me here, uh, one quotation he he cites is, uh, a risk assessment is like a captured spy, tortured enough, and it will tell you anything. Um, A lot of these organizations will hire third parties and allegedly independent groups um, to try to tell you that their products are not harmful. Maybe they're good for you. Uh, We don't really know. Um, And so through that whole gauntlet, of industry pushback, finally regulated silica. And even if you remember nothing about silica at the end of the day, at least remember that every single regulation proposed by OSHA is gonna face vigorous pushback um, from the industry. And they will claim that apocalyptic things will happen if you pass this regulation, when in fact it may be a good way to protect worker safety. Zach, is that going too far? Do you think uh you think uh corporations should be free to expose their workers to whatever
0: just uh throw as much dust up in the air as uh, as they can and and see what happens? No, I I don't think that goes too far. <laughs> um you know, my dad once told me anything that goes in your lungs that's not oxygen is probably not meant to be there. And I don't know how true that is from like an epidemiological or public health sense, but I know for sure when it comes to silica or concrete dust or whatever else, it's probably true that it's not very good for you. Um, No, I think that this chapter is actually, okay. So I think it's very interesting. This is probably the most like personal that the author gets throughout the book because he was so heavily involved in the passing of these regulations. Um, So I, I, I think it maybe was a little bit long, but from like a warrants and examples level, I think this is probably one of the more compelling um, chapters in the book of saying like, this is something that is so simple, something that we have very clear evidence. It's a drop in the bucket. It's easy to pass. And it takes how long? Like six years for I OSHA to 35 actually...
1: years. Sure. After <laughs> after, before, after uh, one David agency Michaels... recommended. Yeah.
0: From David Michaels taking the seat. Uh, it, it took, a, it took not only the first term of Obama, but two years into the second term of Obama to actually get OSHA to update the right. standards. Yeah. Um, because of a variety of reasons. And I think those reasons are fascinating and range from political to legal to research limitations that, that they, they faced. Um, and it gives you a really clear picture into why people at, in those positions probably think so poorly of people in industry positions. So I, I found this chapter particularly interesting. Um, Alexis, you got any thoughts on silica dust?
2: Not on silica dust, but I mean, it was kind of like how Zach was saying, like, this is something that is, you know, again, almost objectively held out to be very bad for you. And and people understand that generally. Um, and even this, it took so long to have anything happen. And there was a part, I believe it was in this chapter, where um, he even had to kind of convince the president because it was kind of like, well... It was almost, I think it was, like, the the cost-benefit analysis of, like, how can people actually implement this? Like, how are they going to be able to meet these standards? And he had to do a whole thing uh, for that, and that was before it hardly even got moving. Like, it's just painfully discouraging to, as someone who, like, walks around in the United States and breathes air, and you know (laughs) consumes products and things that even something as obviously dangerous as silica dust it is still not something that we can easily be protected from and it is going to be subjected to rigorous what was what was it you said rotor rigorous i don't
1: know denial pushback. pushback
2: yeah um So, I don't know, it was just really disheartening, because it's like, what am I breathing in right this second that is going to kill me, that there are people trying to regulate, but the other people (laughs) won't let them?
0: (laughs) Well, it's like pushback and scrutiny, because the problems that they face in terms of, like, passing this OSHA standard are not only, like, inflicted from external forces, but also internal ones, because the burden of proof that OSHA has to present to actually Mm -hmm. be able to, like, implement these standards is massive and it takes Mm -hmm. a pile and for the record there are um half a century ago osha passed among 500 different standards since those were passed in the 70s the early 1970s only 27 have been updated so out of those 500 different like standards they passed on early 70s data We've, we've not even like made a dent in terms of updating that with modern information that we have. So I, I agree, it's a little bit disheartening and it's a little bit like, there's probably a lot of other easy wins that we have that, that are just really difficult to get to. They're not easy wins um, because of the different internal and external faces that we for, forces that we face.
1: Yeah, I have to also wonder, you know, if I'm working for Gradient or Exponent, these big product defense firms, I'm kind of looking for business right so anytime someone proposes a regulation i'm calling up whatever industry that hurts and i'm saying like hey you got to get on this and we'll do it for you for the right price like Mm -hmm. there's probably a whole industry of product defense people and lawyers in dc who are like all about this and the longer it takes to get a regulation passed the longer you're employed for and the longer you know the more of an expert you can be in litigation like I don't know, everybody's got ulterior motives to some extent, but it seems like the swamp is, you know, it's industry groups and um, consulting slash lobbying organizations that love Discord and they love being slow and working inefficiently. Um, Yeah, so I I agree. It's kind of disheartening. Alexis. And and to your point, though, um, sorry,
0: just small point. To your point, Roder. like, a lot of these product defense people do cross over even within the context of this book. Like the author cites several times, like, Hey, this person that worked in the sugar sweetened beverage product defense in the, I don't remember when it was fifties or sixties, <laughs> then transitioned over and became the main product defense person yeah. for cigarettes or this firm, which, which worked on the climate denial piece also, was working on some of the diesel diesel product defense that was detailed in another chapter. So, like even within this book, you see like similar characters um, that that reappear in different industries. Yeah, <laughs> what the regulation is,
1: and the sugar guy like he even sent a letter to the tobacco industry and said like, "Here's my resume. I think I can be of help to you." Like, just super overt. <laughs> like, oh, <yeah. laughs> it's kind of it's kind of funny looking back on it, but. Alexis, I wanted to ask you, as a as a newly minted mm-hmm. AD, um, how I, I want to get your opinion on two things. So first, uh, first is just like general professional ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, do these companies deserve the best that the legal system has to offer? The best lawyers in creating and and producing this doubt. And then secondly, are you comfortable with the way that litigation is often used to regulate these companies where maybe there's a class action lawsuit or maybe there's a, like a very high profile case that leads to companies changing their policies? Um, kind of just want to get your thoughts on like where you think lawyers should fit into that or if they should have to take some type of Hippocratic oath.
2: hmm Oh my gosh, no, I've been thinking about this. Thanks for asking. Well, for one, like the guy that we just mentioned who sent over his resume and was like, let me do this for you. Lawyers are ethically not allowed to solicit, um, solicit, I guess, employment in that way. It's really not allowed. Yeah. So you can't, yeah, I don't know. I don't have the rule with me to cite, but yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. And I I have been thinking about like in-house counsel and um, this past semester, I actually got to um, sit in a very small, intimate class with uh, Melanie Boots, who is the current in-house counsel for Kentucky Fried Chicken, um, which is obviously a very oh, big franchise for um, Kentucky. And oh my gosh, I had like, I was so blown away by her. Um, but she actually kind of gave us a cautionary tale. um, regarding the attorney who was in house counsel before she took over. So this was not Ms. Boots, but basically KFC, she even showed us the commercial that they aired. I don't remember when it was, but basically KFC aired this commercial. Um, kind of spinning fried chicken as being healthy because they had like started using white meat or something. I don't even remember exactly what it was, but they had changed the recipe in a way that I guess was marginally more healthy, but they were trying to market it as though like this is nutritious, which Mm -hmm. no, obviously. Um, So, you know, that, that attorney did give the green light that that would not, because obviously, you know, the marketing team works very closely with, In-house counsel in that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, maybe not every situation, but in a situation where you have a feeling that depends on the
0: size of your business.
2: (laughs) And and if you're in a situation where you feel like maybe you're getting close to um, let's just run
1: this by someone boundary
2: exactly. Um, So they were working closely together and they had a really good relationship, I guess. And she gave them the green light, and then they ended up getting in trouble. And you know, all attorneys can do is give advice. We, you know, we don't know for, for certainty, anything, but, um, yeah, so that, that backfired, and Melanie was kind of just saying, like, the relationship that, that you have, you can't be influenced to say yes, just because you know that the marketing team wants you to say yes, or whatever the case may be, Mm -hmm. um, and that was obviously a really big lesson in, like, integrity and professionalism, and, you know, I never want to work for a corporation. I never want to be in-house counsel anywhere. Um, but it was a really good lesson of, like, there is there is obviously a need for that, and it can be done um, with integrity. Um, but, yeah, honestly, like, this is something I was going to bring up at the end, but we really can't only blame these product defense scientists because, yeah, there are other quote-unquote professionals and people who are, like, really revered in our society as like having expertise and and you should defer to them and i think to some degree lawyers have that and lawyers are not in these situations always doing the right thing and i'm sure that um well i mean i don't know actually i'm I'm not sure but you would think that in these studies where doubt is being basically manufactured that maybe someone would be checking in with an attorney or maybe they just don't even care and it's so flagrant that like they don't, they just publish whatever they want (laughs) to publish. But um, regardless, um, I do think that other professionals in these industries do have more of a responsibility. Um, and there was something in there where, um, gosh, I can't remember exactly, but it was almost like a um, a duty um, of these uh, researchers that were hired to do everything short of the illegal to oh, help their yeah. client. Mm-hmm. And that almost like a fiduciary duty. And that did make me think of lawyers. It really did. Mm-hmm. Um, man i don't know it's yeah because it's really tricky tricky. i think
1: the way he phrased it is like it's good for corporations if the standard is you have to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that our product is bad for people it's almost like the product is, is the person and, and you have, it's like innocent until proven guilty mm-hmm. kind of thing.
2: No, yeah. I loved how he brought that up. Like human beings in our society are innocent until proven guilty, which spoiler is not true, um, in, in the practical way that our, uh, criminal legal system works, but that is true. That is the standard, um. But products are not that. Like they are not innocent until proven guilty. We shouldn't have to bring this absolutely um, uh, like Mm
3: -hmm.
2: untouchable data and this perfectly constructed study that is just absolutely bulletproof in order for you to, uh, as the industry, to like move one direction or the other. And that is how it's treated in the status quo. And it's just really you know, fucked up. Like these products are being given <laughs> a higher standard to be regulated than human beings are for their liberty to be
1: deprived. Yeah. I, I want to get Zach's I push opinion. Back on
0: that Just a little bit. Because, like, sure. I, I, I just, I, I hear you guys in the meta, but I think that like some of this comes down to an impact level discussion what is the veracity of the impacts of what we're talking about i think risky decisions are okay for people to make in certain contexts and so like understanding how bad a product is affecting the status quo is really important to me in terms of looking at harm of products right because like people make risky decisions every day driving your car is a risky decision you're more likely you're more likely to die from driving your car than like almost everything else that you do especially as a young person it's over indexes for killing young people than it does for older drivers because of a variety of factors but like i i do get concerned because i do think it deserves a really high standard of proving a product is really bad or at least showing that it has like a really significant impact as opposed to like a moderately harmful impact because at the end of the day it does become a human choice decision in like understanding how bad something is and how likely it is to be bad are two different things but are both very much related to me in terms of how I like to look at these individual instances. So like that would be my small pushback. That being said I think a lot of the things that we've discussed today fall solidly into the category of much more harm than good and like well proven to be bad and like have very significant impacts. So like the you know, it, but I I would say that like on the individual level, I do want to be cautious. We don't have to prove a hundred percent all the time, but like the burden should be pretty high in terms of proving how likely a product is to cause harm, and how much harm it causes. And both of those questions are different but important to the conversation.
1: Yeah, I think too. Uh, a lot of these regulatory agencies can work better with their counterparts. Um, In other parts of the government or the industry to propose reasonable alternatives that are just as cheap and effective. Like, if there's some good faith effort put in there to be like, hey, but you can switch over to this thing, which is cheaper and safer, then like everybody wins. Um, But a lot of times, you know, an agency will just say, like, oh, you know, just deal with it. Like, we don't, we don't, we're not interested in the solution. Just like stop hurting people. Yeah. Um, one thing that I, I thought of when Alexis was just talking was um, how you put a product on trial, basically, and, and it, they don't deserve the same standards as a human being. But if you think about it from the company's perspective, I mean, you're that's a pretty big regulatory taking, I believe is the term, when you, you basically say you can't use a product, you have to change a product, you have to change a way that your business works. That's not cheap, it's expensive, and you're asking them to foot the bill for it it really reminded me of um, civil asset forfeiture where you put an item on trial and they're, they're not, it's not given the same protections as a human being. So say you're pulled over and there's a bunch of cash in, your, in the passenger seat and the police officer thinks like, you know what, I bet he just sold a bunch of drugs and that's drug money. You can basically, a police officer, depending on what state you live in, I believe, can basically take that money and put it on trial and say, and and you have to, you as the person driving the car, basically have to go to court and defend your money and say, no, 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 I I wasn't using it for drugs. Um, and then basically the standard of proof is, uh, the weight of the evidence. So it's not innocent until proven guilty. It's basically, you have to come up with a reasonable argument for why you didn't just sell drugs. Um, and that's, that's a huge burden on a lot of people who can lose cars, their house, they can lose cash, they can lose items um, because the government is treating an item or a product as different from a human being. But the effect of taking the item has effects on human beings. It has effects on your bottom line. Um, do you agree with that, Zach? I know it's a bit of a tortured comparison, but it's, it's what I was thinking of. No, that's really interesting.
0: And I don't know... I don't know if I totally, uh, well, I, I guess like I would agree that there are similarities, right? Like, I don't know what the specific contention from your point of view is of like, this is the same as this, but I do, I do think there's some interesting similarities in how we treat products in relation to how we treat people from the state perspective and from the corporate perspective, right? What seems to be a similarity similarity to me, as you kind of described civil asset forfeiture in this way, would be that we put an item on trial in a way which benefits the state. And then when I think about it from the product perspective, it almost becomes like the burden of proof is one that benefits private industry in the corporation, right? Because it is so high. And so what's interesting to me is that in both instances, the individual is the one that gets fucked. And the, the state yeah. <laughs> kind of sets up, and so like, I don't know, this gets a little bit lost because like the state could choose a different, burden of proof to how they judge products, right? And like that argument kind of breaks down at that level. But I I do think it's interesting, for sure. There's definitely some similarities. Um, But I I feel like in the end of it all, the individual is kind of the one that gets squeezed out, whether whether it's they're paying the bills of corporations for the harm that a product inflicts on themselves, or whether it's them, you know, having to defend their own money, or them not having a product get banned for being super super harmful, but you know the burden is just not quite there in terms of how it's been proven.
1: Yeah. Should
2: we talk about the litigation part?
1: Yeah. What um, What are your thoughts on that? Lit- so it's litigation as regulation, um, basically. If a corporation comes up on under enough legal fire, um, they're like, well it's a better financial system to just change our ways than keep facing all these lawsuits. Do you think that's a good way to operate?
2: I mean, I don't know from a strategic standpoint. Um, I mean, I guess it's kind of depressing that um, because our regulatory system is so slow and ineffective that that is a route that people are taking. But Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't, I, I remember learning that, The monsanto jury i believe that awarded two billion dollars to the plaintiffs the judge then went and reduced that many many fold and i remember getting a lecture from one of the attorneys representing plaintiffs against zantac um which is a heartburn medication that i actually used to take that apparently causes something really bad i don't even want to know um but um yeah she she told us that she actually knows one of the attorneys who got that um, that award, and I was like, "Wow, forty percent of two billion dollars, like maybe I should go into civil law, but forty um,
1: percent
2: yep wow, yep that 's the standard standard rate." Um, but then she was like, yeah, they, they, they aren't going to get that much. And, you know, furthermore that, that award is, is being appealed. So those plaintiffs will probably never see that money or the families, I should say, because many of these people have died, um, as a result of using these, I mean, at least with Monsanto, I don't want to say many, but, um, so it's, it's like, is that really 2 billion? I'm sure is is a big a a big problem for any corporation really no matter how big but when judges are going to say ah oh, those pu- punitive damages are too much I'm fine with the compensatory damages of actually compensating you for what was lost but just punishing people they're not so comfortable with that so then you you get these uh, awards that are taken down so much that yeah it's a few million dollars or a few hundred million dollars but for a big corporation I don't know. Is that is that gonna have the effect of? Um, I'm blanking on the the preventative, the the right. ability to it's kind right. of make it's an example market. out of them. Also,
1: yeah. And I mean, if you're selling cigarettes, you're probably not going to be able to just switch to a different product. Although maybe they're trying to switch to a new product. Babes, um, bro if you're if you're Monsanto too like can they just switch to a different pesticide or herbicide or whatever like Mm -hmm. i I agree with you it's unfortunate that it comes to that but like i'm gonna join a civil action loss or a class action lawsuit if you know i'm harmed by some corporation Mm -hmm. um and if it's almost like a very free market argument to say like well yeah, they'll just change their ways if they get sued enough, like, because that's just the market, how it works. I don't know. Also, Maybe the human cost of them. that.
2: The human cost of that, I mean, it's so traumatizing. Um, I'm sure for either the families of the plaintiffs or for the plaintiffs themselves to have to go through what are years long processes um, and medical exams and depositions and even just possibly having to testify about um, what happened to you or to Mm -hmm. your family member. I mean, there's a real human cost to this pain and suffering is a real thing, at least in theory. So um, I don't know. I mean, that's, it just, it's just sad, but I don't know what the answer is. I'm not an expert, um, on any of this. And as a tool, I don't really, as a future litigator, I don't really, I I haven't really thought of it from that angle. I, I just think like litigation is always going to happen and you have to fill the role, but I mean, that's interesting. I don't really have a good answer.
1: Um, no, I appreciate that. And I don't have a good answer either. Um, (laughs) I do think one of a, a good thing that can come out of litigation is um, that dis- in the discovery process, you can unearth a lot of internal documents. Um, and that's one good thing that came out of suing a lot of the tobacco companies is that a lot of their internal memos, communications documents um, became public information after they lost lawsuits. And a lot of that's housed um, where I work at the UCSF Industry Documents Library, Um to where anybody can can go look at those documents online and sort of see the internal deliberations of these corporations it's really brazen stuff it's like emails between yeah. people who you know it's very clear what their intentions are they don't hide a lot of the time except for now there's something called eavescasting where it's basically you write memos with the acknowledgement that someone might read them someday from outside your organization but in general I think litigation is a great way to hold companies accountable. And I haven't heard of a lot of lawsuits against corporations where they're exonerated. And it's like, oh, this was such a big burden for our corporation. And how dare they, you know, take all of our time and money? It's usually the little guy who's getting screwed.
2: So, for the discovery aspect, I was going to mention that too, just those documents being unearthed and becoming public record but and this might be like totally wrong but the book talks a lot about how these different industries basically use tobacco as like their playbook and so and I'm not saying that even if this is true that it should it should mean that we don't want to see those documents but do you think part of how other industries were able to kind of take what they could from tobacco and leave behind the mistakes is because all <laughs> of everything was aired out to the public?
1: Probably. Yes. There are interviews of, I think it's the founder of Juul saying, all of the ind- the tobacco industry's playbook is available online. So oh, we goodness. went there. <laughs> And we found out what to do, and no even way. even there, oh um, the the nicotine salts that are used in Juul, which are you know offer a more addictive hit for less nicotine, that formulation is proposed in tobacco industry documents that are publicly available. So it's like, holy shit! Yes, I did not know that. They definitely go there and consult the documents. <laughs> and like, what is
0: okay? The one one point I want to engage with is like, how often is it that these organizations are actually sued out of existence, right? Like Volkswagen's still a company and they had had some of the heftiest fines and lawsuits of like any company in recent memory. They were the exception, they were the outlier. They were way higher than the trucking uh, manufacturers that were using defeat devices in the 1990s got fined. Um, So like, I'm skeptical that it works we need to have way more lawsuits that ask for way more money if we actually intend to use that as a way to like lawsuit companies that are evil out of existence or that do really like
2: I said, even when our peers, juries of our peers are really willing to make an example out of a corporation, which I'm sure is pretty rare. The judge can literally go back and just change the award. So even if it was going to be, a scary, hefty fine for this corporation, judges have the ability to literally cut it in half or more. Like they have that discretion.
1: And get this, the master settlement agreement with tobacco, some of the terms of those agreements were that tobacco companies only have to pay states for a percentage of their Medicaid bill if tobacco revenues remain above this amount. Which meant that if the states wanted to get their money's worth, they had to make sure that tobacco s- sales yes. stayed oh fairly gosh. static. Some of them would. Uh, Is
0: there a time frame on that?
1: Uh, yes. There, there. So there were timeframes on them. They were decades long. That tobacco companies had to keep paying them, but some of them would. Um, I'm forgetting the term. It's. Uh, uh, they would. They would basically monetize that loan and like offload it. So they would say like, hey, we don't really want to get paid X number of dollars for the next 10 years. Let's just sell that loan to someone else and get a lump sum now. And some other company can make that X number of dollars over the next 10 years. But then the company they sell the loan to, or whatever it's called, um, they suddenly have this incentive to sell more cigarettes. And so you have this huge lawsuit, but the only incentives at the end of the day are selling more cigarettes, which means getting people younger to start smoking so the terms of those litigation the terms of that litigation are also important like you're saying
2: also um other forms of dispute resolution are on the rise such as like mediation and negotiation and arbitration and so settlement um, like you're talking about, it, it, it's on. It's it's only going to increase because it is. It's less expensive and um, can be more private, and the, both parties can have more control. There are a lot of benefits to it, even in the criminal realm. So imagine if you know you go in there, and, and as a plaintiff, they offer you a lot of money, even if you could get more at trial, and. And, and you, you take it and you just, you sign the corporation's request for a non-disclosure agreement and for confidentiality and that the terms of the settlement and that uh, arbitration are, are never spoken of. So it's, though, those forms of Of litigation are really, or I guess they're the opposite of litigation really, are rising and that makes me a little bit uncomfortable because although there are pros and cons for both the plaintiff and the defendant in all forms of dispute resolution, it just scares me because these companies are wealthy and they can give plaintiffs what feels like a lot of money and those plaintiffs might not be able to conceptualize what they're losing. I mean, this is even a big thing when it comes to like sexual assault cases we don't get to hear from a lot of victims because they are legally bound to silence and they will have to pay back the money they were paid if they breach
0: yeah no for sure and like corporations are not above using those same tactics
2: right yeah
1: yeah well i think the author um offers a few um, solutions at the end, namely disclosing conflicts of interest and improving transparency. Um, And I think those are pretty simple solutions to not the whole problem, but hopefully start um, making those problems uh, a little bit less insidious and a little less endemic to our government. But I think uh, it's getting a little bit late. I think we should probably wrap up. Um, So, I'll let you kind of have your 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 final thoughts on the book if it changed your mind on anything, um, starting with uh, Zach. um
0: i I think overall i I think the book was, like I said, a very interesting read. It, it gave some good examples, some good warrants, and detailed some of the most egregious instances of corporations trying to protect the bottom line. Uh, I, I don't know how much of it was a lesson learned. I, I think I, for a while, have been pretty skeptical of businesses with economic incentives to do things that work against those economic incentives. And so that's like pretty much all, all private businesses. But um, I ultimately found the book, like said, full of really detailed analysis in certain areas that I could agree with. In other areas, I found it really partisan and and a little bit tough to read. Um, and, and in some spots, I, I, I was like said, really, really hearing the message that was being put, really hearing the messages that was being put down. So I think like at the end of the day, interesting read, it's, it's got a lot of stuff in it that makes it a good discussion, but also the author has a very particular point of view. He's coming from a certain spot, a certain career and has his own economic, political and personal mm-hmm. incentives as well. And so that makes it a great book for a podcast like this because it helps us like explore the different angles and we get to disagree on on certain things. So like I said, good book, maybe a little bit long, but uh would definitely recommend. And it serves as a great reminder that you, you can't trust corporations to be trusting and looking out for your your own interests or your individual interests. You have to trust yourself to make those decisions. And I um, am typically pretty, try to be pretty skeptical of things like the state and individual corporations, but like the truly nefarious tactics that you see on the private side um, can, can be different. And I think that that's uh well warranted throughout this book.
1: Yeah. Great. Yeah. Alexis, how about you?
2: So I, I don't know that my mind was changed, but I think I have a couple takeaways. The first is Um, like I kind of alluded to earlier, it's just really discouraging because I'm just a lay person. Like I like to, you know, believe quote unquote science and like what that means. I I haven't really scrutinized that or questioned it too much. Um, I've taken most things at just like face value and really assumed that there was some type of And in fact, I thought peer review, you know, was like all that we needed for, for researchers to be legit or not. It's peer reviewed or it's not. And of course, you know, I know that corporations are really not to be trusted. I get that. But I didn't really know that they harness these quote unquote scientists in this way. Um, I didn't know that that was allowed. Like, it doesn't feel like it should be. It doesn't feel like it's legal. Like, you know what I mean? So one thing that I learned, for example, is that I was like pretty convinced. I never looked at any research, but I had just heard it. And like, it kind of made sense to me that like drinking moderately or like wine, red wine is like good for your heart or something. But no, in fact, like any, Alcoholic beverage, one drink a day even increases your risk of cancer. like I would have totally been like, "No, binge drinking is bad for you, sure, right. or like you know maybe hard liquor is worse for you than wine or so and like that's just not there's really not evidence for that and I just was like pretty flabbergasted uh by that, and I guess it was I don't know, so that kind of leads me into like my second takeaway, which is as a consumer, I guess. Um, And also just a person like in the world, especially on social media and like pop culture, um, like on Instagram, for example, there are people who are like advocating against certain types of advertisements, especially to kids relating to like these hair care gummies and these like um, there are appetite suppressant Lollipops that the Kardashians have advertised for oh, to their literally real. really I'm serious to their <sighs> millions of followers, most of I wouldn't say most of whom, but a lot of whom are young people um and like i you know there's like keto and just like different trendy diets or different different things it's like keto. I think is probably the most recent thing where what is it? Like literally no carbs hardly. Um, well, then I was watching this show, um, the Zach Efron thing down to earth on Netflix, and they went to this village in Italy that has the most um centenarians, which are people who live to be beyond a hundred, and they do eat carbs, and like the biggest thing was like low stress lifestyle, which to me makes a lot of sense, but I've been told basically my whole adult life that carbs is like what makes you fat and kills you and and everything, like everything bad, just attribute it to bread, you know? <laughs> and even in the army, like I, we, we uh, got like a, a class from this nutritionist guy, which don't know his credentials, don't know where he went to school <laughs> or was trained. I guess maybe I should have looked into that more, but he, you know, broke down the macronutrients I needed to be eating in. And I was literally like, impossibly high protein for me, like, one of my meals in this world would have to be a protein shake, which plant-based protein tastes like shit, just by the way, (laughs) and, like, hard-boiled eggs, and that's it. No fats, no carbs, no nothing, just to get my protein up where this man said it was supposed to be, and it was, like, a super one-size-fits-all approach, and it just, like, was really harmful, but this dude was all about, like, science and studies and it was like just what the
0: military wants you to do.
2: Right. Right. Totally. So just as a consumer, like I've already been skeptical of like the fads or like the different products that supposedly are proven to do this, that, or the other. Um, but this just like makes it even, I don't know. It makes me feel like discerning any true statement is hard. I mean, I thought it was true that, drinking in moderation has like no long-term health benefits and that's just not true. And I'm a pretty smart cookie. Like, I don't think I'm totally stupid. So like, I don't know. It's like how, what other things out there are, you know, is that happening? And I just haven't realized it yet. You know what I mean? So it's, it's kind of like, it's just sad. (laughs) I don't feel great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I totally relate to that. Thank you for saying that because every time I read a book like this or, you know, I'll read the New York Times and then talk to my very conservative father or my mom, it's just like, I don't know who to trust or what's true. And I would just launch Mm -hmm. off into like this postmodern, like we should be skeptical of everything. Nothing's real. Everything's a lie. And I kind of have to bring myself back to center and like think about, what I believe the weight of the evidence shows in good faith, like Zach keeps repeating, like good faith reasoning in a lot of those situations is the difference between night and day. Thinking about people's incentives and their motives behind what is saying, I think should be empowering to us because we can have a better understanding of where they're coming from and what ultimately is true um, when we're educated on these things and when we can peel back the ways we've been misinformed and the ways that people lie to us. So I'm tempted also to just be totally depressed by all this, but I think ultimately we can take these lessons we've learned and just apply them in our lives and in the ways that we talk to people and read and like interpret new information. And I I think, I think we can get there. We can get there. We've just got to keep acting in a way that protects people and really seeking the good of other people. And I think in, to internalize this a little bit more, you know, maybe that means um, sacrificing um, some of my money because I'm buying a little bit more expensive of a product, mm-hmm. but they haven't lied to me in the past, or I don't know if they've lied to me. <laughs> or helping someone else at the at the slight financial cost to myself, if it's just a small thing that I can do. because. If I expect that of corporations, I should do it myself too. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to go dumping 500 million barrels of oil in the Gulf of Mexico, but I can at yeah. least, you know, <laughs> take small steps, you know. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Thank you for entertaining uh, me with this book. I'm so happy I brought it. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, what you all bring. I think, Alexis, you're bringing the next book. Is that correct?
2: That is so correct. I also just messaged you guys an article relating to the um, appetite-suppressing lollipops because I just thought you should know. But yeah, so the book that <laughs> we're going to
0: Huh? It's going in the description if anybody. Right.
2: So the book that we are going to be reading next month is called Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot by Mickey Kendall. And I'll just read a brief synopsis, which Zach, you can cut out if it's not brief enough. Today's feminist movement has a glaring blind spot, and paradoxically, it is women. Mainstream feminists rarely talk about meeting basic needs as a feminist issue, argues Mickey Kendall, but food insecurity, access to quality education, safe neighborhoods, a living wage, and medical care are all feminist issues. All too often, however, the focus is not on basic survival for the many, but on increasing privilege for the few. That feminists refuse to prioritize these issues has only exacerbated the age-old problem of both what is this word
0: <laughs> you, you tell us uh, <laughs> we can't see no, it
2: <laughs> I'm about to type in this word into the chat I feel stupid why would any person use this word
1: sound it up sounds like a word problem
2: In what does it mean though even if I can pronounce it internecine
3: intermes- it's like
2: intermes- intern and then e-c-i-n-e So is uh, it a typo <laughs> this is from like amazon
1: huh inter scene let's see what google in- says
2: turn scene
1: in turn.
2: is it just a typo
1: destructive to both sides in a conflict
0: oh it's so elitist <laughs>
2: <pronunciation>. <laughs> that's a <the> new word <laughs> how do you pronounce it
1: Relating to conflict within a group or organization. The party like shrank infighting? from the trauma of more intercine strife.
2: So like infighting. Yes. Okay, do so I need to read this whole thing over? Or are we just leaving oh, it in or it's not? It's pronounced it at all?
1: internecine.
2: Internecine, great.
1: You called open. <laughs> what should i do that's so elitist oh my gosh
0: um, just get read it uh, start from where you were i i think okay yeah start that i'm simple. glad
2: to, and also i don't think the author wrote this i think this was written by I'm i don't stupid. know amazon Product so, expense person. anyway <laughs> that Somewhere. feminists refuse to prioritize these issues has only exacerbated the age-old problem of both internecine discord, and women who rebuff at carrying the title. Moreover, prominent white feminists broadly suffer from their own myopia with regard to how things like race, class, sexual orientation, and ability intersect with gender. How can we stand in solidarity as a movement when there is the distinct likelihood that some women are oppressing others? In her searing collection of essays, Mickey Kendall takes aim at the legitimacy of the modern feminist movement, arguing that it has chronically failed to address the needs of all but a few women. Drawing on her own experiences with hunger, violence, and hypersexualization, along with incisive commentary on politics, pop culture, the stigma of mental health, and more, Hood feminism delivers an irrefutable indictment of a movement in flux. An unforgettable debut, Kendall has written a ferocious clarion call to all would-be feminists to live out the true mandate of the movement in thought and in deed. And I'm super excited to read this. Intersectional feminism is huge to me personally, and becoming more intersectional is literally a, a daily battle, and no one is ever going to be perfectly intersectional. We're all at different stages with it. I'm very excited to to read this. And I mean, already even just reading that, um, it has me thinking in in different ways. I've never considered that basic needs um, need to be a focal point of um, feminism, but really for a lot of um, women out there, that is, you know, those basic things are very real issues. And we do need to focus on the hierarchy of needs for, for all people before we necessarily get to, you know, for like the, the wage gap. I mean, that is something that gets a lot of conversation and discussion. But when we're talking about white women making, what is it, 21 cents less than a man? Well, there are still a a lot of women out there who who are not even employed with a living wage or who are facing uh, housing insecurity and that's really interesting and i've never really thought about it that way so i'm personally excited to learn and as i think allies that you i hope i'm not being presumptuous but i would assume you guys are allies um of the movement you know it's definitely um a duty for y'all to try to be more intersectional as well. It's really a duty for us all. I mean, let's be honest.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I think intersectionality becomes a little bit of a buzzy term in 2020, but like if you're understanding it in the way that I think all three of us do, which is the intersections of like different privilege sources into like how we view the world, just basically lived experience. Everybody has different uh, ones and, and people have more advantages or less advantages depending on a variety of factors, many of which are immutable qualities. I think it's definitely a duty on all of us to be more intersectional. I am super excited to read this book. I think it sounds very interesting and, and um, you know maybe a little bit of a pushback of the dominant narrative that you see in media outlets today. So I, uh, yeah, I think beyond it being kind of an intersectional book, I think, I think it kind of comes out of a, a place where more people could probably be receptive to, to the messaging that's going on in this book, especially in educated
1: communities. Yeah. Who who would be against that? I appreciate the choice, Alexis. I'm looking forward to it.
2: Yay! It's my turn.
1: It's going to be a good one. <laughs> How long is it?
2: Um it's 288 pages, Ooh. um which I'm guessing is the full thing, so like I'm sure when you exclude the like citations or yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Oh, oh yeah, it's probably Either. 240. Hey, yeah. quick stat
0: uh, not, um, white non-Hispanic women make 79 cents on the dollar to white males, black women make 62 cents on the dollars, uh, to white males according to the National Partnership for Women and Families as of 2020.
2: And even well, like we celebrate like when a women, uh, won the right to vote but that was white women and women of color didn't have that right until long after so Mm -hmm. it's like the goalposts that we have um of like the feminist movement or the women's movement and also a lot of the suffragettes were um racist (laughs) so wow yeah so (laughs) there's a lot
0: lot Didn't, didn't uh was it some of the notable suffragettes thought that like they needed to work with African American movement uh, groups at the time or was it the other way around? Like, like No, it
2: was basically like,
0: like hey, they thought, white
2: men, if we if white women are able to vote, it'll further the white vote more, therefore oppressing
3: no, no, the
0: black vote yes. more. Oh. But also I'm pretty sure yes, for sure. But I think I could be wrong about this, but I think I, I remember there being like black activist groups at the time that were like, Oh, our vote'll come come with the women. Like that's good oh. a thing.
2: Mm -hmm. and it was like no let us focus on ours first and then which is something that honestly you hear in activist circles too much of like well let's just focus on this let's just focus on police brutality against black men and then we'll worry about black women well no this is a movement for all black lives it's not Mm -hmm. just for for black men you know like we're not gonna wait around not we i'm not a black woman but this is for everyone now we can't wait for everyone to matter because then it just won't happen
0: We should always be fighting and raging against unfairness and disenfranchisement, no matter who it affects in society. Yep. 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 And with that!
1: (laughs) Awesome. Thank you all for listening. Uh, This was a lot of fun, and we will see you next time on Reader Beware. Bye!
0: I particularly enjoyed the discussion about Volkswagen.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: I feel like we really just oh, let boy. loose on that one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's just so lonely. It's so shocking. It's like, what the fuck, Volkswagen? Like you the can't guy, do that.
0: I <laughs> did that, and then thought he didn't do something wrong enough to go to jail, and was like, "Fuck it, I'm going to vacation yeah. in Miami." <laughs>
1: Whatever. Sorry. I forgot about reinstalling the device to like make it better at cheating. I
0: made it a better cheat device.